Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning, you're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and what a lovely pleasure it is to have you along. We've got a fantastic lineup of guests this morning. You're going to love every one of them. Uh, don't forget, you can send me an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio or send me a text at 2057. We've got the live wire, Claire Williamson. She's a mortgage broker. She's an entrepreneur. She designs and makes the most beautiful coats for sale you've ever seen at a beautiful New Zealand wall. They're, they're stunning. So do have a look at those. But we've got her on to talk about her business of mortgage broking and her book from Smashed Arvo to Smashed Goals about how uh, you can own a house notwithstanding you're a young person that's a tough market. And she explains in her book how, and it's a wonderful discussion with her, and I think her book would make a wonderful gift to young people that you may know. It might be your children. It might be your grandchildren. Uh, to get them started in thinking about buying their first home, because from buying that first home, all the good things in life start happening, I believe. We've also got the remarkable Sarah King. What a remarkable woman she is. And she suffers a shocking disease that I never knew about called EDS. She's going to be telling us about that disease, about her life, about her interactions with the health system. And it should be a tale of woe, really, but really it's a tale of how the human spirit can rise up and conquer everything as long as you have and work on having a good mindset. And truly, uh, Sarah King is a is a inspiration to us all. Uh, my goodness, what a story she's got. Um, you're going to be fascinated by that. And then we have Tane Webster along. We've got a new section. It's going to be called Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit. And Tane is going to be asking me questions about politics. And this week, it's going to be him asking me about MMP and First Past the Post. He's a young man, and he doesn't remember First Past the Post. Isn't that remarkable? Stay tuned. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Lovely to have you here. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as i've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. 
Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde and home ownership. Now, I don't know how young people do it. It's a struggle with house prices absolutely mad. Well, coming on our show now is Claire Williamson, who not only has done it, but helps lots and lots and lots of people do it and has written a book explaining how you can do it. Claire, good morning. Good morning, Rodney. Thanks so much for having me on today. Listeners are aware that I mix names up, and I have to. I had to pause. Clear, clear. It's not Kathy or Sally or Karen. You got it right. You nailed clear. it. Now, you've written a book, and it's called "From Smashed Arvos." No, tell me the title. It's a wonderful title. It's called "Smashed Avo to Smash Goals: The Fun and Easy Way to Buy Your First Home." What a title. Did you come up with that? You know what? I actually did a wee competition on LinkedIn to help people name my book. So I couldn't think of a great name myself. So I said, look, guys, help me out. And one of my wonderful connections, she suggested something about Smash Devo. And I went, Smash Devo to Smash Goals. Great. So we sort of did it together. And I think we got a really good result. (laughs) It's a fantastic result. Because it's catchy, and once you get it, you remember it. And, of course, it's part of the modern lingo that a smashed goal is a goal that you've achieved, which actually I think is recent. I don't think that was a – maybe you'd smash things if you won a race, you smashed it. But a smashed goal, I think, is is a a new lingo. Now, am I a bit stupid? What's a smashed avo? Smashed avocado? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a a wee story actually that came out in the media a few years ago. And it um, basically someone had said, hey, millennials eat far too much smashed avocado. They're never going to be able to own their first homes. They're they're going out spending money on brunch every weekend and they can't save. So my, my sort of take on that was that you can have it all but you have to have it all in moderation. So um, my idea was you can still have your smashed avo, maybe just not quite as often while you're saving for your first home. And um, and yeah, and, and then you can still meet your goals of home ownership as well. And what is it? Yeah, that's great. But I don't, have I ever eaten a smashed avocado? Like I I've eaten avocados, but what's the reference to the, like- um <laughs> is it going a, out to eat breakfast or brunch or something? It is, yeah. It's it's a it's a relatively common breakfast um 
dish, I suppose, where you've like smashed avocado on toast, and sometimes they put it with feta, and sometimes they put oh, it with, I see. you know, meats and and salads. So if and you're eggs. A, if you're a cool young person, and you're looking after your diet, and you love meeting up with your friends, you have a smashed avo on sourdough toast at brunch, and it costs you twenty seven dollars with a coffee. That is it, yes. But and, my point is you don't do that as often when you're looking to sell your, do, buy your first home. Do boys eat smashed avocado on toast? I have yes. seen this happen before, yes. Oh. Yes, not just a girl thing, no. Okay, because like, no. anyway, I don't, I'm, um, I'm, I don't think I've ever ordered a smashed avocado, but I have had avocado and I have had avocado at home. But I just read that and I thought it's a great title. <laughs> And I wanted to create, now tell me this, you're a very, very busy lady and we're going to get into that, but you're young. How I am. You? I just turned 33 this week. Good on you. And yeah. you got your first home in 2014. 2014, yeah. So I See, was. I've done my research. <clears throat> you have, you have. Yeah, at the end of 2014, November 2014, um, my partner at the time and I purchased our first home in Hamilton in Glenview, great suburb. And uh, and actually, just a wee story, we purchased it from um, a deceased estate. It was a huge house, six bedrooms. And we thought, yay, we're getting more house. Go us. And on the day of moving, we discovered that no one had thought to clean the house. So we moved in and we spent probably all night cleaning the house so that we could actually move our things in. But, you know, nothing could dampen our enthusiasm. We, we'd owned our first house and um, and it was a wonderful project, really. Uh, over the years, we um, renovated it and added a lot of value. There was there was sort of a few bits and pieces left there from the previous owners that so we cleaned all that up and yeah, and then the, a couple of years later, we were in a position to build. So that was pretty cool. So uh, there's nothing more exciting, as you say. You were, what, 23, 24, in love, and you buy a house, and you're so excited because it's the ultimate in adulthood, isn't it, and responsibility. And you have your house, and when you fix it up, it's yours. Yeah, and you get to choose stuff. Yeah, you, know? you get to choose the colours, and you get to make it the way that you want it to be. And oft, often, you don't have a lot of money at that stage. Um, one of the other really interesting things I think I say to people a lot: when I bought my first house, we were right on the edge of affordability. Like we we probably shouldn't have been able to to borrow the money we did, and we scraped every penny together and our income wasn't amazing we were I was working part-time and studying part-time and um and it just the timing probably wasn't perfect but at the end of the day I think it's really important if you can to do because sometimes things change and if if you've got a um if you've got a loan approval say working through we'll talk a bit more about that later getting into it and actually being able to take that ownership so then you do have the choice to you know, paint it grey or paint it purple. Mm. Um, maybe the neighbours might have something to say about the latter. But, you know, um, it does give you a real sense of pride and ownership um, and uh, excitement. Did you have flatmates to defray the costs with six bedrooms? <laughs> we actually didn't. And it's funny, no one's ever asked me that before. We actually didn't have flatmates. We had 
the odd person would come and stay, but um, no, we didn't have flatmates at the time. Uh, I think we did actually, though, go overseas about six months later. So we made a few improvements and then decided that we were going to um, go for a bit of a trip. And actually, we did rent it out at that stage. Okay. So, yeah, went through the, the whole period. Well, I'm renting in Arrowtown in a very small place. And right now I'm interviewing you from my 12-year-old daughter's bedroom. And in Queenstown and Arrowtown, there is a massive shortage of houses and people literally pile in flatmates, married couples with children. They have flatmates, they have people sleeping in the garage, and then they'll park someone's camper van in the driveway and have people living there. It is absolutely nuts i know of a grandmother sleeping in a caravan park she's not poor but she can't get a place to stay and i have several people i know who are working and literally sleeping in their cars now funnily enough they're tough people and they don't moan or whinge about it. They're not they're not the homeless that you see in the paper, but you know, they're carpenters or builders or electricians or tilers, and they can't get a place and they just young and they will sleep in their car. How nuts is that? So I've got a very distorted view. So when I read that you had a six-bedroom house, if that had been in Queenstown, you would actually have 15 flatmates and probably four in the garage, if you know what I mean. It's so crazy down here. And the other funny thing is they've built these suburbs and there's no room for all the cars because uh, everyone has a car. And so per house, they're literally <laughs> six cars parked outside on the lawn uh, down the street. It is amazing. What a world we've created. Now, that was my little story. What's a mortgage broker, which is what you do during the day, right? Yeah. So a uh, mortgage broker or a mortgage advisor. That's what yeah. that was, that's what we call ourselves these days. Yeah. Uh, we are essentially the in-between um, between, between a, a client or a person who wants to borrow money and the bank. And what we do is we sort of, I, I say we speak bank, you know, we interpret policy we um we ensure that we explain things in people's terms um so that they understand what's going on and um, but also i think one of the most important things that a mortgage broker does is has a bunch of options so every bank has a slightly different policy for example um one bank might say hey look we're happy for you to have a border paying 200 dollars a week another bank might their maximum might be 180 and another bank, their maximum might be 250. So depending on the bank, that can change your borrowing amount quite significantly. So everybody has a different situation. Um, and I think it's really important to have those options because sometimes it can mean the difference between making a purchase work and not making a purchase work. So um, that's the first reason. And the second reason is um, I very biasly believe that everybody should have financial advice. Um, and so coming to a, an independent mortgage advisor means that you, you get advice for you and you don't have to pay for it. So um, I think it's a no-brainer. Personally. Yeah, so Instead of going off to see a banker in a bank office who, I don't know, it's sort of a bit of a power imbalance. You don't feel that they're exactly on your side. 
And of course, it's not like the old days when you're in a little town and it was Sam and you'd pop in and see Sam or Joanne that you knew from Cubs or something and you'd talk to them about a home mortgage and everyone's situation was a bit straightforward. Um, now I can go to you. What's your company you work for? My Mortgage is my mortgage. our company. Yeah, I can yep. go and see you at My Mortgage and... You're obviously a person that's very easy to talk to and with. And then you can say, well, what are you trying to do here? And then you need to know certain information. And then you can say, well, here's your, here's a good option. Now, how do you get paid if that's not a rude question? No, not at all. It's part of the legislation now for us to tell ah. how we get paid. So that's all good. Um, <clears throat> so we essentially get paid by the government, uh, the government, the bank. I was going to um, say, I was going <laughs> to terminate the interview. Get paid by the bank. So when we put a loan in place, um, mm -hmm. the bank pays us a, a small percentage of that loan um, in a, a commission, essentially. So Do it depends a little bit on the bank and how it's structured. But some banks will pay um, one payment and others will pay what we call a trial commission, which is um, for a small amount, but for a longer amount of time. So for us, that doesn't really matter. We we have a, a heap of banks that we work with. We, it doesn't bother us really whether it's a um, up front or a little bit longer, longer term. We, we, is that mm. all made public because of the legislation? It's it's disclosed to each client. So okay. obviously it's a different, a little bit different for each client. So what yeah. we do is at the end of the process, we talk about what the structure is going to be um, and we send all that off to the bank. And then we have a final document that we send off basically, which says, cool, yep, here's how much um, we get paid and, our, our business gets paid um and yeah and we take a pretty pretty um good approach to it i suppose and that okay. we just make sure the client's looked after because we we kind of want every client that comes to us we want them to be our client for the long term and forever so as, as okay. long as they've got a mortgage we want okay. them to stick with us though and so you don't have a preference financially to any one lending institution or another no, that and that's be a bit tricky. <clears throat> exactly, yeah. No, that I think that's the good thing about having um, mm. a business like ours. We we, we don't like, we do work slightly on commission, but it's not the same as contracting. So we everyone in our business is employed, um, and we do the right thing by the client for that reason. So um, yeah, so we don't have, I suppose, as much competition mm. within our ranks um, mm. and within our business. We just yeah, um, everyone I, gets paid. I fairly. am. I am your grandparents' age, I'm a, um, afraid to say. So I grew up in a completely different world. And um, it's hard for us to understand. And I know people now like to overshare. But when I went in to get a mortgage, typically you had worked for several years. Everyone knew that you had worked, you had got engaged, you had saved some money up, and you were in love and married. Nowadays, when you go along to talk to you, I mean, you're going to get some extraordinary stories because it's going to be, oh, I mean, I would be embarrassed to talk to a mortgage broker about my past five years. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, I'd look at my thing and they, what happened there? Oh, yeah, no, it didn't sort of work out. And oh, 
and you were with that partner, yeah, didn't sort of work out. And then this happened, oh, yeah, no, I went a bit nuts. Now, I'm a bit sensitive about that sort of stuff because I'm sort of sitting there and thinking big F on my forehead, if you know what I mean. Because I, I haven't had recently, and I imagine a lot of people who decide to settle down and buy a house, they actually haven't had the ideal house, the ideal lifestyle for the past little while for a bank to say, yep, this is a good bet. Yeah, I think one of the things that was publicised very well in the media was the triple CFA legislation. So the Credit Consumer Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act rattle that one off um and that has restricted a few people from a lifestyle perspective so hey yep you spent a thousand dollars this month and going out for dinner and the bank was sort of assessing it and putting it in what has changed probably over the last 18 months or so is that they have been a little bit more practical about those things so um for a lot of people if they um if they buy a house they're going to sort of tighten their balance a wee bit and change things um in terms of their budget so we we have a lot of conversations around that um sometimes people say oh you know we we spend what we earn we wouldn't do that if we if we had a had a house so that's probably the first um part of it but the second part as well is what I call if this then that so a lot of people come to us and they might not be quite ready they might not have quite enough deposit they might not quite have enough income or they might need to repay some debt for example um the 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 situations are sort of endless really but what we do a lot of is um provide them some some solutions that might um change their their existing um the way that they're perceived by the bank. So for example, someone might come to me and say, hey, look, I want to buy a house. I've got 10% deposit and I've got a $10,000 car loan and I earn $80,000 a year. And I might say to them, cool, you can borrow $450,000 now, but actually if you paid your car loan off and maybe they had a student loan as well, if that was paid off, then actually you could borrow 550 and it might make a big difference for them in terms of what they can borrow and buy for. So that's a, an example. It often happens with income as well. So we commonly get a lot of families that come to us and say they might have had someone that was off um, having a child a, a, um, on maternity leave, and that might impact how much they can borrow. So giving them an option of, hey, if you did this thing, we could achieve X. If you had a border or a flatmate, we could achieve a bit more if you um, increase your deposit to 20%. So there's a lot of different options there. um, And it's something that I think a lot of advisors maybe don't do quite as well because I think it's important, right, to understand where you could get to. And I think the banks um, don't don't really do that often either. And a lot of us aren't very good with money and thinking about the future. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm thinking me. Um, Now, (laughs) I got a be a bit careful here because I sound whenever I have someone like you on, I Google them, right? And my wife worries that I'm a stalker, right? So I apologize, but I did Google you. And you're like a many faceted entrepreneur. You're a go-getter, right? You do other things. I do. I do. I have a few different hats. I have a, a small business which sells um, woolen coats. Um, They're beautiful was, coats. They're beautiful coats, by the way. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to inject a bit of uh, colour and woolly goodness into the world. Um, and I get a lot of comments. I've just been wearing my coats around in the last few weeks as it's cooled down a wee bit. And I'm lucky I've got a wardrobe full of colourful coats. Um, <clears throat> and people are always asking, you know, oh, where do you get those from? And so I'm sort of giving out cards and things. So it's, it, that's really What's cool. the name of that business? Velma and Beverly. And that one is named after my grandmother's. So that wee strange name is where that comes That's from. Wonderful. Yeah. And how did you how do you make a coat? Like how do you make a coat that's yours and you're selling? I mean you design you just, it, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you can get them pattern, um, patterned out. So I worked with a um, – she was actually a client of mine, fantastic lady, and she, her and I sort of worked together. Um, I sort of said, hey, this is what I'm thinking, and she helped me put the pattern together. I'm a sewer but not a great one, um, yeah. so I understand how it works, but I'm not someone who can go out and make a pattern from scratch. So I have some incredible people on my team that that um, help me with that. And then every time I want to look at a new design, that's how we – that's how we, the process works basically we just pattern it out make one I start wearing it if people like it we put it into the range pretty simple <laughs> and you're using New Zealand grown wool we are yes so we get our wool from a beautiful farm down in the Wadarapa called Palliser Ridge and they have some um, really wonderful practices re- regenerative um, and and quite um, sort of yeah open, free range, I suppose, kind of um, extensive farming. Um, and their their wool is fantastic. So they use it for um, making blankets, but also we purchase their, um, their yarn and that goes into our fabric. So it's pretty exciting. Um, the people that run that farm, Lisa and Kurt Portas, are fantastic, really, really um, forward-thinking farmers and always trying to improve things on farms. So very, very cool. And you could be the next icebreaker. Well, I hope so. Maybe. Um, I'd like to keep everything made in New Zealand, but obviously with that comes a wee bit of a price tag, and I've talked about that on other podcasts in the past. Um, But, yeah, it's it's really cool to have um, have that that little wee business on the side to make a bit of money, but to make a difference as well. To tell us, tell us again what that web page is to look up your coats. www.velma, V-E-L-M-A-A-N-D, Beverly, B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y.com. Now, when I'm going for my mortgage, because you're very intimidating because you're so successful, <laughs> I'm coming to see you and I'm wanting, you know, my mortgage. Are there a whole lot of things that you and I know shouldn't count but sort of do? right, like of a personal nature. Um, I can imagine if I was lending someone money, I would be highly discriminatory, you know what I mean, about lifestyle and attitude and all the rest of it. So I myself, if I was lending money, would favour someone who was married, was, hmm, If they went to church, it'd be a big plus for me. Not that I go to church, but it'd be a big plus. Had been head girl or in the Boy Scouts um, and had a baby on the way sort of thing. If you know what I mean? Because that just reeks to me of stability and commitment. And if I'm going to be lending people money, stability and commitment and honesty figure big. If I had someone come in and they're exactly in the same financial 
situation. But uh, they haven't got around to getting married. Uh, they've had lots of relationships and sometimes they're in threesomes or whatever it is these days. And, um, oh, yeah, one of them had a child, but, you know, it's with their mum. And, yes, no, I've had lots of jobs. Uh, I'm going to say no. Does that happen? So part of our job as mortgage advisors is to tell a good story. So I have often have a conversation with my client and we learn a bit more about them. So I probably wouldn't go into as much depth as, you know, where they went to school and whether or not they were head boy or head girl. But um, we, it's our job to um, essentially portray that situation in the best way possible. So, um, so yes, to an extent, some of the things you've seen are correct, but um, I think it's more about the the financial character. So if they've had a stable job, if that job's been for long term, or if they've changed but to a similar job in a same similar company, all of those things are, are important. Um, ideally, less existing debt, um, ideally good credit history, all of those things. But but at the end of the day, I, I think I say this in the book a bit as well, um, kind of like no problem is insurmountable if we can line up other things. So there's sort of um, a range of things that we consider. So obviously it's income, it's debt, it's it's kind of financial habits, what we call character, um, where or, or, or um, account conduct, so how, how you're managing your accounts. Um, it's your credit history, and it's probably your job history as well, mm-hmm. um, rather than sort of your overall family situation. We do a lot of loans with um, blended families, with um, parents and kids, um, with small young couples, with older couples. Like the the opportunities really are quite endless. But um, but it's about yeah portraying that story. So what we do is we tell. We're very good storytellers, basically. Good. good. Hmm. You're, you're like a good lawyer. And mm. also, I mean, the bank's got an interest in the house. So it's not like the not got something backing up the loan. Yeah, absolutely. So it the- must give you a huge sense of fulfillment to have someone come to you wanting to buy a house and you pulling it off for them. Yeah, totally. And I mean, first home buyers are my favorite in that space, really. I, I've got a card sitting here on my desk with just all these really kind words about how our team was able to smash it for um for a client. And it's just it makes all the difference in the world. Like these these guys are 22 and sort of never thought they'd be in a position to to buy their first home in Hamilton. And it's pretty exciting to be able to actually take them through that process. Yeah. I bet. And tell me, are there many that you have to say it's not going to work? Or given that you're a problem solver, you can always say to people, well, here are the issues. This is what you need to do to overcome them. And if you do this and overcome them, I will be there to help you. Because you'd never, from what you're telling me, you never say, mate, it's never going to happen and show them the door. You'd no. actually say, it's a bit like your doctor. Yeah, you've got to lose 20 kgs, um, but you can, and here's what you need to do, and it's up to them. 
Yeah, absolutely. We do a lot of that. Um, people come to us and, and actually a lot of the time they know they're not quite ready yet, but they don't know which levers they need to pull. Do mm-hmm. they need more income? Do they need more deposit? Do they need less debt? What what is the actual what do they actually need? And so we do a heap of that where we look at um, hey, if you did this, then it would achieve this. And we are often working with people over a period of a couple of years. I've I've had clients um, come to me and not buy for three years um, and we just check in with them every six months how are things going um, and situations could change um, sometimes people get windfalls sometimes people really knuckle down I had a client the other day who paid off $15,000 worth of um, short-term debt so a car loan in um, six months and amazing really really amazing they just went cool this is what we need to do They've, they're about to go unconditional on a purchase of a brand new home Isn't in Morrisville so it's it's pretty awesome. Um, and so we give honest but um, kind advice. So I mm. hear stories all the time about people saying, oh, you know, the bank or someone said, oh, I'm no good or I'm, you know, I'm never going to do anything. And I said, oh, you know what? I'm never going to say that to someone. I'm going to say, right. if you did this, we will achieve this. Great. Now, you're on Reality Check Radio. I'm talking to Claire Williamson, who's a mortgage advisor slash broker, and she taught me already something so amazing because I always forget people's names because I get so into the interview, and she told me I just wave my little mouse around and it pops up at the bottom left in Zoom. Uh, My amazing, Claire, thank you for that. Now, this is a tricky question, but it just occurred to me. Oftentimes, it'll be a couple, a man and a woman, do you notice a gender difference? No, not really. Like um, every cl- every couple's a little bit different, or every client yeah. is a little bit really different. Because you really get to know them, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah, and you know, once people talk about their finances, there's you know Nothing. many other things that we discuss yeah, too, right? It's, it's good fun. Um, no, I, I think in every situation, like there's generally someone who's sort of leading. So one of the two will generally lead. Or sometimes there'll be one person will sort out the paperwork and the other person will sort of sort out the sales process of the the purchase. So deal with the real estate agent and all of those things. Um, But there's not really a difference in gender. That can be, yeah, either or really, Um, which I think is cool because it means everyone's a bit different. Yeah, your generation. It's amazing. It's great. Now, tell me about, because I got you on ostensibly to talk about your book what's the title of your book smash devo to smash goals and the fun and easy way to buy your first home wonderful um what was the motivation for writing the book well to be frank i got a bit annoyed at the fact that there just wasn't um enough information out there for first-time buyers i was getting questions and the same similar questions often and there was no really resource that was in depth enough to be able to answer those questions in a lot of detail so we created blogs and we created videos and we've got a bunch of them all over our website at mymortgage.co.nz if you want to have a look but um i wanted to really create a resource that actually collected those um those things together and actually brought them into one place so what I've essentially done is elaborated on um, a lot of those writings that we'd already done and then created some case studies and just tried to connect readers in with people that are already doing the things that they want to do. So, um, yeah, so that was probably the story of the book. It actually took me about five years to write because, you know, things keep getting in the way and um, we're a busy 
firm and we're, we're dealing with clients all the time. So having that actually um, complete and being able to get it out there into the world has been fantastic. And it would be quite good because some I take information in through reading and I struggle oftentimes to listen or I'll hear it. And then I finish an interview and if someone says to me, my producer will say, oh, what did you cover in the interview? I look at them completely blankly because I'm listening very intently, but it sort of goes in and out. And I've recently taken up gardening and I have Wally Richardson, the gardener on, and I listen to him. It's so exciting. And then it disappears, but I've got his book and I read his book and it sort of goes in. I need, I need both. So I can imagine coming to you for advice and getting the book and the two of them working side by side. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we're actually um, providing a lot of professionals have jumped on board and wanted to actually use the book for their clients because um, it, it gives a really wide um, range of experience across the whole process. So, for example, you might buy the book and you might get your loan approval, but then you can't remember quite how you get your KiwiSaver withdrawn from from yes. your provider so you can just go to the chapter in the book about KiwiSaver and you can look at all of the details and all of the criteria and um and it's a really easy resource so um yeah I totally agree with you I think having having a wide range of materials and um in different forms is really important so we've essentially got a video breakdown of of a lot of the things that are in the book um but I'm actually looking to create more in that space too for the people that like to be visual right yeah me uh so it would be a great present, would it not, for a mum or a dad or a nana or a granddad for their young kids? Yes, it would be. Um, <clears throat> my opinion, one of the greatest gifts you can give, right? No, it's um, it's been really cool. I've had a lot of mothers or mothers and fathers or grandparents purchase, um, and I'm you know happy to write um, a, an inscription to the person. I've done that in a few. Um, different spaces, which has been really cool. So like, hi, John, you know, you can smash this, really exciting <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Well, so, how do I buy your book? <laughs> um, just on our website, mymortgage.co.nz slash shop is our, um, it's probably the easiest way to get it, or you can just get in touch with me, just clear at mymortgage.co.nz. And what does the book cost? $24.99. That's actually a great price. How did you get it down so cheap? It's not a huge book. Um, it's, yeah, so we sort of thought, you know, we want to make it accessible. Good for you, $25. Mm. Well, that's a, I mean, that is actually some smashed arvos and a latte. It is, exactly, right? Your it book. is. So all you have to give up is one of those meals, those brunch op, uh, opportunities to get the book and you'll have a lifetime of success. So let me get this right. You bought your first house when you're 23, 24. And it was a big commitment because they had six bedrooms and needed a clean up. You then went overseas. You're a mortgage broker, mortgage advisor, clearly successful because you are vivacious and onto it. You got a business designing and selling colorful woolen coats, which are astonishing when you see them. Like I went on your webpage, they're astonishing coats. You're a published author. Um, you're a little intimidating. I hope not. <laughs> I, I, I think I have a good, 
a relatively good ability to, to relate to people. And I also feel to um, one of my big things is to be judgment free. So to be able to connect with someone, learn a bit about them and about their situation and then give them the advice based on what's best for their situation. Um, and that, that actually goes beyond giving advice about mortgages too. I do it in almost every facet of life. And I think um, it's really important to stay, um, yeah, basically just to be really, really relatable. Um, so I work well, pretty hard on that every day. You're a very, very impressive person. And um, good for you, because there's no reason why everyone can't be impressive. And so often we look at people and think, oh, God, yeah, look at them. And that's the modern world. And here you are, this uh, bright and shining star doing this. And not only that, but helping people, it's amazing. One of the interesting things is that You've lived in an era when interest rates have been low, now changing. That's been your professional experience and adult experience, I would guess. And house prices have been dramatically on the up. Do you sometimes think that that's Oh, I'll put it strongly, a fake world. Not really. I think I think there's challenges in every generation, right? So um our generation obviously does have challenges around um house prices rising and you know, um potentially wages not quite keeping up. But there are options. I think I've spoken to a lot of first-home buyers who have decided to move to a town that's more affordable and they've got jobs as policemen and teachers and um, retail assistants and tradies and those types of roles are available in many areas. So I think um, probably just thinking outside of the square a little bit in terms of what what's going to help people oh, achieve their goals. I, but um, I didn't explain the question well. Um, one of the things that occurs to me, I think when I got my first mortgage and people can text me if I'm wrong at 2057, but I think it was like 11% or something nuts, right? Because we had raging inflation and the government of the day had decided to get everything under control. So we had the worst of all worlds. We still had the inflation and then we had these high interest rates. Now the mortgage was killing you, literally. The inflation was eating up your mortgage And then there was a drop in property prices and your equity disappeared if you'd had to sell. And I look around where I live, Queenstown area, and the house prices are literally insane because of the cost of production, if you like, you know, an eighth of an acre with a house on it, $3 million, and the house costs less than a million or a million. So you're looking at that and thinking it's all bedded into the price of the land. There could be, now I have to I have to say this with some caution because I've been saying this for 20 years and I feel like chicken little, you know. 
that there's going to be a major correction. Now, it doesn't bother me because I'm with you. People have problems and there's always a way around them and to fix them. But do you sometimes think, hmm, I wonder what happens if this whole property market changes? Because my observation is people in their 30s and 40s just think this is normal. And to me, it's not. Just because I was, when I got my first home, it was a different housing market. Does that make sense to you? I imagine you hear that a lot. Yeah, I do. I do hear it a lot. Um, and I also hear a lot about changing interest rates. It's interesting when you talk to people who are, say, 40 plus, maybe 50 plus, and they say, oh, you know, rates aren't that expensive at the moment. And I've got people who are 35 going, I bought my first home three years ago. What do you mean I need to pay six and a half percent? So it's diff- it's it's a very different, um, I suppose, different world in that respect. Um, in terms of property prices, I think, yes, there are some areas in New Zealand which are probably um, a bit bit too expensive but I suppose also going back to what I said before there are always options I like to remain positive to be honest I I don't like thinking about you know how how things are all dreadful and you know (laughs) I always think they could be better but um yeah but I think also um we do have a lot of people that want to come and live in New Zealand and Mm. that has obviously pushed up Um, our prices a little bit here as well. Um, I think there probably are a few levers that could be pulled in the rental space because I think that's a big challenge, as you mentioned earlier. Um, Rental prices are expensive as well. So potentially there's just a little bit more that could be done to support more housing to be put in place, open up more land, all of those kind of things. But I think there are plans to do that in many different Mm. places. Um, But, yeah, no, it's. I think... um, Plenty of options is is key. And I think that's probably my catch cry across everything. Options are really important. Yes, and you're an entrepreneur, clearly. And it's an entrepreneurial attitude. I want to explore where that came from. But an entrepreneurial attitude is the most wonderful thing in the world to have. Because what it means is, is that you just jump in. And a a non-entrepreneur looks at jumping in and says, oh, what about this? Oh, what about that? They're like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, which is a great book too. Um, and and they say, oh, no, I'm not going to do this because X might happen. And so they do nothing in their life. Whereas an entrepreneur jumps in and says, I know, excuse my friends, shit's going to happen. But when it happens, I'll fix it. And yeah. chances are it won't happen. And chances are when it does, it'll be something I would never would have thought about. So the most important thing that I can have as a skill or a talent is to look at everything as a problem to be solved, not as something that'll overwhelm me. Yeah, 100%. I, I have a bit of a saying that um, done is better than perfect. Yes. Um, which a lot, of, a lot of people do look at like, oh, I'm going to set up a business. The first thing I need to do is set up a company with the company's office. No, no. The first thing you need to do is figure out if you've got customers and if your product's going to sell or your service is going to sell. So I talk to people a lot about that. And I, like you, I say, you know, get things started. Start talking about 
about things. An example with Bauma and Beverly, I literally called a wool production company and went, hey, have you got some spare wool that I could just buy? Any any colour, doesn't matter. Literally drove up, got that wool, made something out of it, started wearing it around, people started commenting, and that meant, hey, you know what, I've got a viable business. Um, that's not the approach that everybody takes. They kind of try to reverse engineer a bunch of things and spend a lot of money too before they actually get to that stage. So I think it's really important to think, why would you be in business? It's to help solve someone's problem or it's to help um, provide some kind of valuable product or service. That's got to be where you start. And then you can just build all the other things in behind. Like I built a website for Velma and Beverly while I was on my couch recovering from an Achilles injury. Um, it's actually, it's not difficult. You can Google things and, and you can uh, you can kind of get all those things to fall in place. So I suppose my attitude has always been take some action, do something, even if it's small, and then you're going to learn something. Um, and I think the other thing I'd say is surround yourself with really awesome people, people that positive are going to help change you, yeah, challenge you and, and be positive about what you're doing. Um, too many people out there are trying to tear others down, and um, that's a bit sad. So you've got to find the you good ones. You need with the uh, I don't want to add to your workload, Claire, but you need to write another book about mindset because you must look around and you've got your mindset, which is a winner's mindset. And a winner isn't a person who's smart, isn't good looking, isn't all that. It's a winner is a mindset. And you choose your mindset to a large extent by, as you say, surrounding yourself with positive people, being positive in the morning, all those things. And the funny thing is, when you get yourself into a positive mindset, you can understand why, A, you don't do it all the time, and B, why, does, why doesn't everyone do it, right? And we all have moments when we lose our positive mindset, but we know, funny enough, it's a choice, right? Absolutely, it is. And and sometimes I think, you know, some people are never quite going to get that and that's fine. But um, but yeah, I agree. And I think one of the other important things I've learned probably in the last six months is how important it is to tell yourself that you can achieve things, to tell yourself that you can do hard stuff. My partner and I have cold showers every morning and both of us say to each other, you know, this is because we are choosing some adversity first thing mm. in the morning to make the rest of our day seem like a doddle really yes no, no, no problem is insurmountable yeah I, I i learned a lot in politics funny enough because i'm not a political person and i didn't want to do it but i did it because it was a long story challenge but i learned this i learned what you mentioned was georgie s Patton's um a half-executed plan and instituted with violence is far better than a well-thought-through plan <laughs> instituted tomorrow. But also that idea that if you tell yourself, people ask you how you are, and I used to tell people how actually I was, and by the end of the day, I was miserable. <laughs> I just tell people I'm great, and I've never been better. And by the halfway through the day, you're starting to feel great. So the whole thing, is what you're telling yourself. Now, I don't want to take up your time because I saw you look at your watch and you've got clients to see. You're okay. But I'm fascinated by your mindset and I want to know where you think that came from. Was it your parents? Was it your school? Was it, have you always been this way? 
Um, have you always felt you don't fit in? What is it about you that has made you this positive, leading, ultimately going to be successful person? I think it probably did start a wee bit with my upbringing. So my parents were very hardworking farmers and sort of really showed that value, I suppose, of, of work ethic and getting stuck in and we always helped. So there was always a, um, I suppose, a sense of that. I've always, I've always done a heap of stuff. All through school, I've um, I've always been involved in sport and creative arts and all these subjects and learning languages. And so I've always been quite varied in, in what I do. But I think probably the the entrepreneurial probably mindset and the desire to constantly or consistently be positive um, probably came from when I was working um, with uh, a squash and tennis club back in 2011, 2012, um, and I um, was working with a, a guy called Adam, um, Adam Thompson, and he really supported me to um, take more of a business um, approach to that business. So that was a, a not-for-profit, right? Um, he then became my business partner, and that's how I became a mortgage broker, a little bit of a long story. But I think um, together we've actually been able to achieve quite a lot because we support each other and, and build up mm. that that mindset. So mm. I think even more important to actually have um, those people around you who good are going mentors, to, yep, good who are mentors, going to, to help good, drive good you. Good role models, not mm. people that'll tear you down. Get the hell away from people that are negative. Get the hell away from people that uh, tear you down. Get the hell away from mentors that will use and abuse young people. Um, very, very important where you land yourself. Um, and, to how you choose your friends, how you choose your environment. Um, you can see it all uh, looking back, looking around. Um, now, again, being stalky, Rodney, I read, uh, I read, I read a lot of your book and I think it's wonderful. You also have a dream of owning a farm. I do, yes. Um, I think that comes from my roots, really. I have a real connection with land. And I think also um, the other part of me is very rural at heart. And I've always wanted to live um, live rurally, but also have the impact that I'm having. So I'm pretty lucky that I'm able to live just out of town at the moment. But yeah, owning a farm, I think, has been a dream of mine my whole life. I used to want to be a farmer. And then I decided that I'd also like to do um, have some impact in business and give back and make a bit of a difference. So this is kind of where I'm at at the moment. And um, and it's so about it yeah, sheep, learning and it growing. Would, it would be a sheep farm? It might not be. Um, mm. That would probably be the ideal, but um, it might be a farm which does a whole bunch of things. I, I think I love the real the approach of um, really diversifying farming into yeah. tourism, into products, into um, actually still growing and and um, providing amazing food and fiber. But there's so many other things that you can do with land these days. So showcasing some of that is probably where I'd like to go. You mentioned earlier, and I'm about to wrap up, so don't get anxious because you're a person that monitors your time quite rightly, but this is so interesting to us to learn. 
You mentioned that you studied. What did you study? So I went to university and I studied sport and leisure and English and French. So I have a BA, Bachelor of Arts in English and French, and a Bachelor of Sport and Leisure Studies. It's really useful in my time as a mortgage broker. <laughs> um, I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I learned how to write really well. Um, I learned how to be critical. Um, I had some amazing lecturers and people that supported me, and I did my um, I did honours in both of those degrees. So that allowed me with I suppose just to explore the um, being a little bit critical and in being able to um, learn to argue a point, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny how life turns out. Like so that I was often like say, three or you know, three, I don't have finance degree. You had three or four years of <laughs> yeah, university. three and a half years. Three and a half. Yep. And when you were doing that, sport and leisure, and what was it? English and, and French. English and French. Hmm. You wouldn't be sitting there thinking, in 10 years' time, I'll be a mortgage broker selling woolen coats. What were you thinking no. 10 years ago that you'd be? I think I thought I'd be a teacher um, because I was a sort of PE and then I had the English and French as a, yes. as backup sort of subjects. I thought I'd be a teacher. I actually started teaching and and just it wasn't for me at the time. And then I went, shit, what am I actually going to do? And so then I decided sports management was my kind of jam. And I went into working at the um, at the squash club in Cambridge, which was amazing. But I think one of the, the key things that I'd like to share in this space is um, if someone offers you a great opportunity, take it and work out how to do it later. Yeah. It's something that I, I come back to a lot. It's, Isn't um, that wonderful? Yeah, it's it's um it's a really, it can take you places if you say yes. Yep, sometimes there are times you need to say no because you need to protect your time or your energy. But I don't think I'd be anywhere close to where I am now if I hadn't said, yeah, man, I'll be a mortgage broker. I don't know what the heck they do, but, you know. That's how I like ended up in politics. That's, I, that's how I ended up in politics. I had a, I agree 100% with you. And um, you solve problems as they arise, not ahead of time. And people overdo the old business plan, get the experts in and all the rest of it, whereas you're best just to rush in madly sometimes and clean up the mess afterwards. Uh, one of my favorite things that happened to me was there was no work around and I was looking for work and I went into this sawmill and they looked at me and they said, oh, I went in wearing a suit, you see which wasn't done, this would be 1981. I went in wearing a suit and they looked at me and said, well, we've got no work in the office. I know, I said, you don't understand, you know, I'm looking for any work. And the man looked at me and he said, can you drive a forklift? And I said, has it got wheels? And he said, yes. I said, of course I can drive it. Oh, great. You know, you can start now. <laughs> so I went home, got changed, come back, sat in this forklift and thought, how do I turn this damn thing on? And I ended up quite quickly, not a bad forklift driver, because I know how to ask for help. And we know this in life, don't we? That if someone comes along to you and said, oh, um, Claire, how do I do this? And they're young and enthusiastic. You will fall over yourself to help them. There's nothing more you want to do than to pass on your knowledge and experience. And that will be the same 
uh, for someone who's wanting a mortgage, wanting some other problems around paying their mortgage, someone wanting to start in business, someone wanting to play squash. You go out of your way to help them. And all people need to do is be a little bit enthusiastic, a little bit keen to learn, and then to ask someone who knows. Yeah, and I think also demonstrate that you're hardworking. It's actually yeah. going to set you apart in this generation. And I I think um, there is a little bit of a sense of, um, I suppose, wanting things yesterday, I think, in some um, for some people. And I I do really, really, really value hard work. Probably comes from, you know, being the daughter of farmers who worked all the time. But um, hard work, enthusiasm, willingness to learn, and a willingness to do anything, willingness to, to go and let the stamps and, and post and mm. letters, uh, you know, those things are what's going to set you up really well and provide you with opportunity. Um, and I think that's just really important um, to demonstrate well, that if you are wanting to learn and grow. Well, we've got to go over this book one more time because it's a great book to give to people who want to get onto the property ladder. It's called Smashed Arvos to Smash Goals, How to Get Your First House or some subtitle like that. It's amazing. You can buy it on the webpage, so it's just a click away, and you get it on My Mortgage. Is it My Mortgage? No. Mortgage.co.nz. MyMortgage.co.nz. How? How easy is that? MyMortgage.co.nz. Go to the shop, look this book up. You can look up Claire Williamson. You can email it. She will sign it for your son, your daughter, your grandson. And the thing that shocks me is it's $24.99 or something, $25. I don't know why they don't say that, but it's marketing. $25, which is potentially a gift that will change a young person's life trajectory, not just and having a house, because in getting on the property ladder, all the good things in life come along, because you start planning, you start taking responsibility, you start thinking about the future, and it all starts from getting those keys and having that mortgage. You'll change jobs because you need more money. All those things happen when you get this book instead of having a coffee and a bit of smashed avocado on cheese and i suppose if you have smashed avocado you don't have butter you probably eat that dreadful stuff i have butter too butter because you're a farm girl well farm girl uh, gotta support the farmers oh butter is the greatest gift on the world uh claire you are an inspiration truly truly you are um a uh, an exception to your generation and the way you take responsibility, have that flair. It's wonderful. I want to have you exposed to lift people up to what they could be. And you're doing a wonderful job helping people get their first time because it's not just about the house, is it? It's no. A, it's about <laughs> a lifestyle. It's about a, a life choice. And there you are going to be, a, uh, you're going to have a great, regenerative uh, sheep farm with growing lots of things, producing beautiful, colourful woolen coats, which fashionable ladies in Paris and New York will be wearing. And we will know of your name, and I'm going to be sitting on my porch in my rocking chair saying, I interviewed her once. 
because I think you've got this um, great life ahead of you and you richly deserve it. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for all that you do. And thank you for giving us an hour of your time. That was, thank you, Rodney. It's been so much fun. Oh, fun is our middle name because um, I'm a I'm a little bit against government and the regulators and all the people that would boss us around and tell us what to do. And I was with a group of friends at the weekend and I was a bit down in the dumps as you get because everything seems a bit overwhelming. Principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, take this, do this, don't say that, don't talk about this, or you can't do that because you've got to go and see the council. And they said, you know, we're going to win. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's nice to hear. And he said, you know, you know you're going to, we're going to win because we have fun and we laugh mm-hmm. and we have humanity and we're human. Mm. And you know, that has stuck with me. And you see, mm. when I'm talking to you, you're a human being. Mm. Funny that. And when you get talking to someone from the government and they're regulating you or they're trying to tell you why you can't do something, they're a bit autonomous automatons they're not very they're not fun so good on you claire thank you for being with us we're gonna i'll put in the links to the book so you can uh find the book i think it'd be a great gift you're on reality check radio real talk with rodney hyde that was the wonderful inspiration claire williamson from mymortgage.co.nz what an amazing human being You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us a text, 2057. Send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. 24 hours ago, I'd never heard of this disease. It's called EDS. We're going to learn what it stands for. But I could tell the person contacting me was genuine. And I have a very, I think, developed detector for detecting those that are pulling your leg and those who are telling the truth. I like to think I have through experience, judging people. And this story is true. And it also rung true 
about what a person can go through, not just with a debilitating disease, but with a disease that the medical establishment doesn't detect or recognize, and where friends and family think, particularly, dare I say, if you're a woman, that you're being a drama queen and just need to get on with it, harden up, develop. And yet all the while, you're suffering a devastating disease. Well, to tell us of this disease and to tell us of this experience, we're joined by the wonderful Sarah King. Good morning. Good morning, Rodney. Thanks for listening to my story. I'm really grateful. Oh, Oh, it's an amazing story. And you're an amazing person. You are an amazing person. And you're so bubbly and full of life. (laughs) Surprising for someone who has to battle to get out of bed most days. But I I reckon it's all about attitude. Yeah. Well, you've got a great mindset. We're going to learn about what you were like before the disease hit in a minute. But first, what does EDS stand for and what is it? So Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a genetic connective tissue disorder. So um, that kind of doesn't make a lot of sense by itself. But to explain that further, connective tissue is pretty much everything in our body except solid things like bones. It's, I mean, I'm being kind of very, very broad here, but about 90% of our body is made up of different forms of connective tissue. And the connective tissue in people with EDS isn't formed properly. Um, Because it's in our DNA, it's right from birth. So some people are quite young when it starts to impact them. But for most people, it's as you get older and older and older, your body starts to fall apart. And because it's all of our body, often it's all the different parts of your body, sometimes all at the same time. Um, Hypermobility is the most common way that it's picked up. What does hypermobility mean? So hypermobility is a, a real classic one, is a lot of people with EDS talk about being able to party tricks when they were children they could bend their thumbs right back their uh, limbs would go in funny directions they're often really good at ballet or what we used to call double jointed yeah yeah exactly yeah so these you know as children they were constantly overstretching myself included things because it looked funny and people thought you were clever and not realizing that that wasn't going to heal. And when you hit your 40s, you were really going to suffer for it. What was your party track? Uh, I could do the splits till I was bizarrely old. I can still make prayer hands behind my back. I can uh, twist my thumb right down against my arm, all sorts of, (laughs) I'm, I'm particularly hypermobile, but a lot of people with EDS, are hypermobile young, but then their body sees up as they're older. So then, you know, that's not a trait anymore. So, um, but, yeah. It's oh, sorry, small. I'll just go on to just explain. There's actually 13 different subtypes of it. So for some people, uh, it's a vascular system, for example, and they can have a heart attack at 25, completely out of the blue. Um, there's there's uh, issues, a lot of people suffer with gastro issues, with heart issues, 
with, oh, I, I mean, I can literally go through the entire body and tell you about all of the different things. But in summary, the biggest issue for me is that my muscles do all the work of my tendons and they essentially hold my body together. So I, my body's just constantly exhausted. Um, my oh, I see. So just standing there, you're yeah, having to use your sitting muscles. Sitting on a chair, my muscles are doing a job that they shouldn't have to do. Going down a step, my muscles have to literally sort of strengthen every single part of me and hold me together to be able to hold my body down that step. Um, and because your tendons and joints don't work properly, big major bones slip out of place constantly and and for me, my neck's been a constant problem. So therefore, I have massive central nervous issues because it does, my central nervous system doesn't work properly, which you can't running down a spine that's all off in funky, wobbly directions. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but unlike listeners, I can see you because I'm on <laughs> Zoom. And you look wonderful. And well, I'm very bubbly. You're holding your body together well, might I say. I was always told I had great posture and now I realise it's because I was physically holding myself together <laughs> all day. Um, yeah, and I am very careful with my time. So I'll have, you know, I'll, I'll give this time to you this morning. I'll spend a bit of time in my garden and then that'll be my day. I'm careful to not burn myself out. Yeah. And so for the rest of the day, you need is lying down what you need to do? Yeah, unfortunately it is, and it's such a frustrating thing because I was always such a busy person, so I've had to learn to force myself to lie down. And when you lie down, can you read or listen to something, or do you sleep? It depends on how far I've pushed myself. If I've pushed myself to the point that I've got brain fog, I've literally got to tune out completely. Um, Otherwise, yeah, I I sleep a lot, lots of naps. Mm. And are you in pain? Always absolutely constant no matter what I do use painkillers to manage the worst of it but I try to not take any but I live with a constant level of pain that I imagine most people would take the day off work and go to bed and tell me you said it's in your DNA so did your parents or grandparents suffer? Yeah. So for me, it's through my father's side. And we actually discovered that because a very kind cousin took me to my the specialist appointment that I was diagnosed at. And as he was diagnosing me, she kept saying, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that too. <laughs> and so we very quickly worked out which side of my family it was. And we're pretty sure my papa probably died with it. He was... He was in a lot of pain. That's um, your granddad. Yeah, on my dad's side. So, yeah, we have found it. And then since we've found another family member on that side with it. So we know where it came from. So it doesn't necessarily always express or. No. So your dad had carried it but didn't necessarily suffer from it. Yeah, so it, it has about a 50% hit rate and it can okay. skip entire generations quite okay. easily. Um, and can they pick it up with DNA analysis? Can they uh, spot the gene? Type, they can't. So okay. the other 12 types they can, okay. but just unfortunately the type that I have, they haven't found the gene, the gene for it yet. Yeah. Okay, and when was it, it's named after 
people that discovered it or diagnosed it or described it. How long has it been in the medical literature? I think it's about the 1920s. That's entirely from memory. It's been a while since I kind of researched it all deeply. And how uh, common is it? Well, that's the big question, really, because it goes undiagnosed so commonly and people have to get so bad before someone puts two and two together. Uh, There are a lot of conversations around the possibility that a lot of people with ME, CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, and, you know, other fibromyalgia, there are all sorts of illnesses that are very, very quickly diagnosed and then people are brushed off, that there's a possibility that they are just undiagnosed EDSs. So, Mm. yeah, the medical community are very, very slowly opening their ears and listening um but if i went to my gp and said out of the blue what do you know about eds would he know what i was talking about from my experience uh, it's very very unlikely um and or they'll say i've heard of it but i don't really know what it is yeah now is it a disease that just gets worse and worse and worse and you manage it? Or is there something or things that you can take or things that you can do to slow it or reverse it? Well, so it can't be treated as such. You're never going to have a body that builds itself properly again. So or ever, for that matter. Um, But, yeah, it can be stabilised. So, yeah, there are varying treatments. um, Part of it is I developed extreme allergies, so I use antihistamines to keep those under control. Um, I have a a form of therapy called prolotherapy where I have needles jammed right into the middle of the joint and it stabilizes that joint. And so I've had about 40 injections of that over various joints in my body over the last three years, uh, which is why I'm now an upright person and no longer using a wheelchair. Um, There's, depending on what, because it can be just any part of your body, people have heart problems. So there's heart medications. No, people have massive gastro problems. So there's varying medications you can take. So really, there are varying forms of mitigating either the EDS Mm. or the comorbidities that come with EDS. Um, But, yeah, ultimately, it is degenerative. Your body can't heal itself properly. How old are you? I'm 46. (laughs) Just a chicken. Yeah, Uh, just Do you, like, the future must be scary for you. I've what I've been through was so hideous and so close to death that I see my life as being every day is such an amazing blessing. And I know what's wrong with me now, and I know how to manage myself, and I've completely accepted it. And accepting something like this is the biggest life changer ever. Just accepting I'm never going to have the life that I had ever again I'm never going to be able to fulfill all the career dreams that I had but instead I have this quiet life and I have chickens and I have turkeys and I have 
grandchildren around me and I'm home for them and I just focus on the good. Good on you. Yeah. I met a lady at the weekend who has a 37-year-old special needs son and she was a lovely lady and she cares for him. And I said, how is it? And she said, well, it's lovely. He wakes up in the morning and he says to me, aren't we going to have a wonderful day today, mum? Bless. And through the day, he says, mum, aren't we having a wonderful day? And she says, when he goes to bed, he looks up up at me and he says, didn't we have a wonderful day today, mum? And isn't that the wonderful thing about life, that a mindset and the love that you'd have for that boy and his mindset and how he is? And you'll know this from your past life. People going through their life with not a care in the world but deeply troubled <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and now we we you feel so blessed that you had an hour up um and not in a wheelchair and got chickens and funny enough your life is probably richer than it's ever been i don't i'm not advocating no. suffering you're absolutely right there are vast amounts of my life that I look back on and think I was so busy. We were striving for this materialistic world that, you know, everything went into and working a million hours and studying and and all the kids and all of the various, you know, things that the kids had to do to be socially right, all the lessons and the sports and the, you know, all of that. And we were just on this treadmill and, Mm -hmm. I can honestly say that I've got to be grateful to EDS for the fact that we stepped off that. Well, we didn't step off. I was pushed off. <laughs> you fell off. Tell yeah. me this. Tell me this. That right. <laughs> um, tell me this. Let's go right back. Let's go back to your life pre you'd never heard of EDS. And as far as you were concerned, you were a healthy young woman. Tell me about that life. Well, I, so I, I was in my late teens diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. So I was sort of, was aware that there was something always in the background, but I'd still just plowed on through life. So I'd traveled overseas. Um, I got married, had my children. We, I ran a number of businesses in Auckland. So I was a passionate entrepreneur and, I uh, had just such an amazing time with that. I was I had spots on the Good Morning Show with Mary Lambie a couple of times over. Wow. Um, I was a regular as the wedding planner, and I was a regular. Five years later, I came back and did a whole lot of gluten free cooking. Um, we had a yeah, I published a gluten free cookbook. We were super 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 busy, you know, real busy Auckland life. And then as our children and got to, you about, had four children. Four children, yeah, with a there's ten year gap between them. So as the elder two got to ten and twelve, uh, was sort of starting to kind of question life in Auckland, and I wasn't sure it was really what I wanted for their teenage years. So we made the decision to sell up 
everything in our worlds. And I got a job um, in Niue Island as the general manager of the resort there. Oh, good for and you. And my husband got a job as a dive master. As <laughs> so a what? Stay at home parent. As a dive, he was the dive master. So he was went out on whale tours. and went. Oh, wow. While I was running this very busy resort, he was living quite the dream. A lot of fishing <laughs> went on. Um, so, yeah, we did that for a couple of years. That just knocked us absolutely out of, you know, the the real sort of busy world and moved us into a society where people move a lot slower, there lots of cultural challenges, language challenges, really interesting things to face. And then when we came home... How did we your children take that shift from being busy, busy kids? <laughs> and, That's a good question. And at school with their friends and then suddenly yeah. in this new a backwater while dad does dive mastering okay. and fishing... And mum's busy, 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 busy yeah. running a resort. How did the kids find schooling and no friends and making friends? Well, um, we were, I'm lucky. My kids are really cool. Um, they only hated us for about three months, I think. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't too long. Nah. Uh, no, our eldest daughter didn't think it was very funny. Um, but we, we, Really, really enjoyed Niue because there aren't a lot of expats there and there isn't a big population. A lot of the other islands have big expat populations that all hang out together, but there isn't a big one there. So we had to immerse really, really quickly in the local community. And the children, I mean, everyone's lovely, but in particular, the teenagers are really lovely and they really took the elder two children under their wing and very quickly made them, you know, part of their friends. And my my son's just gone back for his honeymoon and my daughter made regular trips back every couple of years before wow. she had children. So, and the, some of their closest friends are their Nguyen friends. So yeah, it was really life-changing. They thanked us once they were adults. <laughs> they didn't when they were teenagers. <laughs> We've all had that with our children. Yeah. <laughs> Those moments <laughs> of, oh, what you did was really great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I um, sent my oldest boy to China to study when he was 17. And my mother, bless her, never forgave me because she thought it was too brutal. But um, it made him. And oh. he he was growing up very soft. But I did find out later that it was a, he had a very scary, scary time. You know, like it was a big leaving home moment. And we, what's the word, coddle them so much now. And then I did the opposite. I coddled and coddled him. And then I said, this is too much coddling. And I went overboard, if you know what I mean. You're off to China yeah. <laughs> on your own um, at 17. But um, <laughs> they do thank you. And you do change their trajectory. Did you, when you were in Nui, did you ever think or have moments of exhaustion and kids where you thought I've made a wrong decision? Yeah, uh, right at the very start, things went very stable with my job and it was, um, the resorts actually run between the Nuan and New Zealand governments and okay. I discovered it was actually a really political position and mm. a lot more complex, far more complex than I ever could have imagined. Uh, but I quickly got some support around me and yeah, there were, it was only really right at the beginning. Once it was home, it, then it became hard to think about leaving. So. Right. 
but you left. We left. It was a two-year contract, and uh, it's very commonly known, people that go up and work on the islands, that you do your two years and then you leave or you go a little bit batty. And so a lot of people said to us, don't get tempted. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> you will go nuts. It's a tiny, there's, I think, about 1,700 people live in Niue. Yeah. Tiny, tiny country. And, and the reality is we did it for that experience. But the longer we were there, we had terrible internet. You know, the kids were, there were things they weren't experiencing. So mm. we did need to come back to society. So we came back and settled in the Waikato because we just wanted a quieter world at that point. And my husband and I both wanted to study. So uh, we kind of decided that the Waikato was a better fit post New Way than going back to the big city again. <laughs> Yeah, so there I took up another uh, position managing a hotel and just just kept getting sicker and sicker. What and were you studying then? I did my postgrad in business management. Okay, and um, and work managing a hotel. Yeah, and he was he did his postgrad at the same time and was working full time. Yeah, and by now we had two uh, pre- still preschoolers and two teenagers. So it was about as manic as it got. And I think that's a lot of why I missed what was wrong with me because I felt like I was constantly at the doctors. Something, you know, would go, I'd have gastro problems and then I'd have heart issues and then I have brain fog and I, you know, and then um, my reproductive kind of issues all just went completely crazy and, or I'd twist my ankle and it wouldn't heal or, I was aching and I just felt for that first couple of years we were back, I was literally, you know, nearly weekly going into my GP. And unfortunately, she was extremely dismissive of um, my situation. And she just told me to try yoga and try mental health apps and try. Basically bugger off. Yeah, lose some weight. I was I was tiny. I was a scrawny stick, and she was saying, <laughs> you know, oh, you've got weight's your problem. It was, yeah, she just, I could just tell she'd roll her eyes at me when I'd walk in, and there was no help. So I felt like I was just stuck in this, just barely holding myself together. And I decided that maybe the hotel industry was the problem. It is, you know, hotel did you, did you think? You wouldn't be connecting all those issues to one. Not issue. at all. So you you and no. you were very clear that you had this issue, that issue, that issue, and they were sequential. And you're thinking, oh my God, what's going on? Yeah, but- and off to see this specialist and then off to see that specialist. And it was very separate. And but each time you were very conscious that they were real. Oh, I mean, they were. Phys- I was physically presented. You know, I'd have rashes all over me, or I'd have a clearly swollen, twisted ankle, or you know, a lot of them weren't. You couldn't have made them up. Yeah, <laughs> and yet I was still being <laughs> treated like I was. It was bizarre. It was just so strange to me. I suppose if you're, a, I mean, when you go to a doctor nowadays you do feel as though you're talking to an algorithm where they have their set questions and you have your 10 minutes or 15 minutes and they run through and 95% of things they can attend to in that 15 minutes. 
I can't wait for AI to come along and be a doctor because at least it'll spend time and the algorithm will be better. That, I've already tested it. I put in seven <laughs> symptoms that I had at that point in time, and it immediately diagnosed me with EDS. Ah, that's so funny. Isn't that great? Yeah, <laughs> AI is going to be so much. Yeah. Hey, doctor, I'm not Googling what's wrong with me. I've got an AI doctor, and it says, so just give me the pills that my AI says I need. Um. So that it's those 5% of rarer more or syndromes that are leading yeah. to a complex arrangement of symptoms and this doctor is not connecting them back to one cause no and that's where Ehlers-Danlos syndrome falls completely through the gaps is because they've literally got 15 minutes and yeah. you know you can only really well cover one or two things in that time so they don't have the time to hear the whole story I would there were times that I'd book double appointments just so that I knew that I could get through a bit more this is expensive too right oh this is I can assure you the whole thing has just been absolutely financially ruining it's extraordinary the amount you know of of what I've thrown at completely the wrong things as far as you know investing thinking things would help wouldn't or you're on uh, you're on reality check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde we're talking with uh sarah king we're talking about her disease called eds which take us through it slowly what does that stand for again sarah so it's eyeless danlos syndrome eyeless danlos syndrome eyeless danlos syndrome and we're up to the point in her life where she was this amazing, busy mother, entrepreneur, student, everything going on at once, managing the complex tasks that only mothers and wives have to do (laughs) with a whole lot of moving parts and suffering a whole raft, rashes, everything, but all supposedly separate and going off to the doctor to have her doctor roll her eyes and sort of say, oh, it's you again. And yet each time that Sarah's going to see the doctor, she's really suffering and she knows she's sick, but not putting it all together as one thing. So did you ever doubt your sanity? Uh, It was further along. I did... Yeah, further a few years, kind of further into the process. But so we've this, got this is just the start. Oh, I'm, this is barely touching the, the sides of. What oh I my god! <laughs> Carry on, because I'm like at the end of my, I'm at the end of my tether now. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. So yeah. So there was uh, there was about a year there of having various surgery that was pointless and seeing. When you say surgery, like for what? Uh, for endometriosis, because she decided that must be what was wrong. And so they went in and did that. And unfortunately, people with EDS don't heal well. So surgery is literally the worst thing. Cutting into us is the worst thing you can do. Because um, of the connective so, tissue. 
Yeah. So, uh, and I saw so many different specialists. I was on wait lists for nearly every hospital department at one point. It was completely crazy. And I decided I couldn't keep going and I had to stop. And so my contract was coming up and I decided I'd take a couple of months off work and just stop and heal and get better and put an end to it all. And then I just went downhill at an extraordinary pace. I started developing allergies to really common household things, um, chemicals, foods, everything under the sun. I couldn't, I literally couldn't get out of bed. I ended up, um, I was doing about 20 hours in bed. I couldn't shower by myself without fainting. So we had to have a bath lift to get me in and out. And I was in a wheelchair if I was up. And I basically checked out. There was about a year and a half there that I just lay in bed and used any energy I could for when my children were around. Um, And other than that, just slept and slept and slept. And if I got up, I would hurt myself. It It was just hideous. I was absolutely convinced at that point that I was just slowly dying of something like CFS. Um, and I was reading stories of other people with CFS, me, um, and how they did die. Was that chronic so, fatigue syndrome? Yeah, yeah. And it's very easy for me to listen to this and to be terribly sympathetic and show empathy. But on a day-to-day business, this is hard to live with. Oh, it's it's an impossible so, psychological game that you're trapped in a body. So your child, your children, and your husband, they're having to struggle. Like, what the hell? They're not expecting a mother and a wife. No, it was excuse me, to be neat to be so useless. Yeah. To and be I was- questioning everything about my role as a mother and a wife and to be so demanding like gotta be helped and like and it's yucky right oh it's awful you lose your dignity you lose your respect in yourself you it it just so how are your children how are your children handling this their mums are they i mean i imagine they would have preferred life without it but they also all found their own kind of ways to cope. My son as a teenager just sort of kept himself as distant as possible, as teenage boys all do, let alone ones with chronically ill moms. Um, the younger ones have I've really always been ill. They don't really know me any other way. So they're incredibly empathetic little people and caring and loving and did their best to help me in every way they could. So yeah, that we've done our best to get through an awful situation. And how were you managing financially? Could you manage? Well, at that point in time, um, I, we, I had worked, you know, up until recently. And so it was a real, real push, but we just slowly started working through all of our savings and then as I got sicker and sicker, the, my doctor wrote a letter saying he doubted I had more than a year to live and my Kiwi saver was paid out. So then we worked our way through that. So, um, yeah, no, it's it wasn't easy. Every day was a backward step. And there was no potential future that didn't look like that. It was 
that was terrifying. And you know, I knew that one day we'd get to the point where we couldn't keep going like that anymore. That um, letter that you had a year to live, did you believe that? Yeah, I did. I I was uh, I developed anaphylaxis and was having you know just constantly using hundred and seventy dollar a pop epipens, so I would push it and push it and try to get through and try to medicate myself and not use one unless I absolutely had to use it because the cost was just so massive and you know, the ambulance people were just so sick of me and everyone was sick of all the drama. And so, uh, yeah, so I was very sure that, that I planned my whole funeral at that point. I was. How long ago was this, Sarah? This about, probably about three and a half years, maybe three and a half, four years ago now. Hard to believe looking at you. <laughs> It's all about attitude. <laughs> well, it's a lot of laughs that you've had yeah. since then. That you... Oh, look, if you don't laugh, really, what else would you do? No. <laughs> well, like, I've cried enough. <laughs> someone told me at the weekend that we're going to win. And when I say we, you know, us people who are skeptical of all the madness and the media and the politics. And he said, we're going to win because we have humanity and we can laugh and joke. And, you know, it's really struck home because you look at all these politicians and the media and woke wokesters, not a lot of fun in their lives. <laughs> you know, oh. <laughs> we can sit here and laugh about your death. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and at this stage, no one's actually, you're sick. You're very, very, very sick. No one quite knows what it is. And you think, oh, I must have really bad chronic fatigue because it's the only sort of yeah. thing. And then even that's not very satisfying because it's a syndrome rather than, a, you know, if you get cancer and people say, oh, you got cancer. It's sort of wonderful when you get a diagnosis, isn't it? This is what's wrong with oh, you. And you sort of, exactly. I know and who the enemy is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you're suffering. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's when it got really, really bad because I wasn't always in bed. There were times I was okay, well, not, you know, better, um, better than usual. And so I was seeing different doctors and that was the point that the doctors started turning on me and they would, they started to imply that it was all in my head. And so the support people who I had around me at that time believe the doctors and they believed that it was all in my head and that I was just addicted to painkillers and I was attention seeking and everyone was just kind of really sick of it. It was just exhausting for everybody. And um, we, I wasn't making any progress and no one could find anything wrong. So clearly there was nothing wrong. Yes. Um, so the absence my failure to know what's wrong with this person means that they're not sick. Therefore, it's in their head and they're mental and probably should be given mental drugs and put in an institution. Exactly. So, and, yes, they and did. Your, your loved ones are looking at you and thinking, well, she's not dying of bloody cancer or anything. She hasn't had that heart attack. Um, or a stroke, 
So, and everyone's telling us that, you know, mum's not too good in the head department and it sort of fits, right? Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, in hindsight, I can see it, but I needed people to keep advocating for me and I needed support. And I, and as more and more doctors were sitting down with my family and saying, you know, Sarah's, you know, really just, it's, she's actually, creating these reactions in her body psychologically um you know and if she takes wow. the medication she we've really got to deal with you know the psychological issues and the pain um, clinics were really similar you know they were like look pain is all entirely in your head and you know if we can work through that that then you won't be in pain anymore and you won't feel tired and do so you believe we, them i didn't know I never I always knew something was wrong because none of it was my personality at all no. like if I've been someone who you know had sort of suffered with depression through my life or something or I could I could see but I couldn't understand how you can go from who I was to this and how anyone doctors or the people around me could think that made sense none of it added up for me I always knew something was wrong and it was being missed and kept searching and there was a point at about this point actually that my husband and I did bring up EDS and I was told no no um you don't fit the criteria but you also need to stop googling you know you're you, you're trying to google diagnose yourself and so we were completely cut off at that point and so that yeah it got it started to get really vicious in my personal life um my husband was trying to get me to take medication that I knew was making me sicker. And I knew there was all sorts of different psych meds and heart meds and all sorts of things. And I knew that it wasn't working. And so we were just absolutely at war over his belief. Yeah, I he wanted me to get better. He wanted me to follow mm. what the doctors said to do. And you know, and, and I he's he's been through the mill. Yeah, and totally also with you. Yeah, he's trying to help our, you. Whole, our whole family, everything, all mm. of the pressures of the world were suddenly on his shoulders, which you know they hadn't been. And so it's a strange it, thing about uh, a loved one, like a child or a spouse, is that. You suffer more, I think, than they do when something's not right, you know, when they're attacked yeah. or someone's rude or something goes wrong. And if it was happening to you, you would be dealing with it. But to watch them suffer and that inability to help is, I think, the spouse or the mother or father suffers more which is a strange way of thinking about it, yeah, isn't it? It is, a, yeah. But I, and that that inability to do something, and then the conflicting information that we were yes. getting, you know, the conflicting between what I was saying and what Google was saying and what the doctors were all saying, and yeah, and it just it it ended up completely tearing my whole family apart. I most of my support network just simply refused to help me anymore. Um, 
I had, there were a few really bad incidences where there was one that I, I'd worked my way up the list of painkillers from the bottom to, and got to methadone, which is after you've done the tramadols and the oxys and the codeines and things, you end up with methadone. Uh, and I missed, I'd fallen asleep and I didn't get up in time to pick up my prescription on a Friday night and I didn't know what to do. So I went up to the hospital where it had been prescribed and explained and said, look, I don't know what happens with withdrawal and I'm really scared. And they put me in a room and then the police came and took me out, put me on the road outside the hospital, told me I wasn't allowed on the grounds anymore and left me there. Um, and I ended so they regarded you as a meth addict? I was I was told I was drug seeking, um, and I said I'm not drug seeking. <laughs> I'm here for information. I you know if if I can go the whole weekend with no methadone and be okay, that's fine. I I'm here because I've been put on this extreme wow. drug, and I'm terrified. And oh when I do go well, it's I'm going to go into withdrawal really really badly. Um, no one was interested. By that stage, I had such a huge file at the hospital and I'd received a conversion disorder diagnosis, which is the equivalent of hysteria. Um, and so it, no one even made it past that diagnosis. It sits at the top of your file and they go, oh, here she is again. So I... And now yes, you've got your, your, an hysterical woman who's... A drug addict. Yeah, apparently. The drugs that the pain clinic at that hospital prescribed me that I didn't want. I just didn't know what else to do. I was just in so much pain and so, so standing, standing outside the hospital grounds, is it day or night? This is now the evening, yeah. And um, a, a, some strangers came to help me and one of them said, I've got, I know someone on methadone. I'll get you enough, you know, what do you, what's your dosis? And I pulled out the bottle and she went off and she came back about half an hour later with enough to get me through the weekend, which is, you know, she could have given me anything. It's absurd that a stranger gave me the methadone to get through the weekend because the medical people who prescribed it, who were 50 metres away from me, wouldn't, I wasn't allowed back on the grounds. That sounds it's like. Insane. That sounds unreal it sounds like a movie the, the, there's been multiple moments i've been lying in anaphylaxis in a hospital bed in emergency and had doctors just mocking me and laughing me and saying you know here because what did you do sarah have another fight with your husband so you're here to get a bit more attention do people give you flowers when you come to the hospital sarah doctors <laughs> just, saying that the head of the department openly mocked me multiple times. He'd laugh when he saw me because they, if you use an EpiPen, you have to go to hospital. So I, you know, there were some times I had to be treated in hospital with more and more and more because one EpiPen wasn't enough. But a lot of times I'd given myself the EpiPen, I'd got the anaphylaxis under control and I'd followed the protocol, which is to go into hospital. And there they mocked, laughed, made an absolute fool of me told me I clearly loved attention and that I was wasting up resources for actual sick people. And it, oh. it became, I was terrified. I was terrified of having anaphylaxis and I was terrified that that would mean I'd end up in the hospital where the, they were so vicious and so cruel to me. 
And because at the top of your file is hysteria. Exactly. Yeah. And and so, seeking methadone. Yeah. So and I I'm struggling not to say bad words. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I probably was using bad words, which probably wasn't helping my situation, no. to be honest. <laughs> Go back to the movie bit too. This whole thing is a movie reel. You've got this you're outside the hospital in the evening and these strangers walk up. Were they meth addicts, do you think? No, not at all. No, no, she was leaving. Uh, she actually, uh, she was, had been there visiting someone, her grandmother. Oh, was. wow. Oh, and I was like, I completely soiled myself because that was also part of my fantastic anaphylaxis reaction is yeah. that everything just completely gives away and I'm vomiting and, you know, lying there just on what the an, grass on the side. An of the what an angel. Yeah. And she was like, we've got to get you in there. And I said, I can't. <laughs> I'm not allowed back in there. They'll call the police. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. This it, is Waikato Hospital. Yes, this is, yeah. It's all outside Waikato. And I filed a complaint and I was told that they'd done nothing wrong. Um, so that was the last time I ever filed a hospital complaint. Even though things just kept getting worse, I never bothered again because I realised the system's not not set up to help us. Um, I mean, I know people, there are people who do have good experiences and I understand that the hospital, there are people it does help, but once you've fallen far enough through those cracks to get some sort of psych diagnosis, it's next to impossible to undo that. So the next um, stage in it going wrong was by now I friends and family just really hated me and I was so angry that no one would advocate for me and no one would help and I was alone just constantly um, in these situations where I'd have to phone an ambulance and I'd be asking strangers, sorry this is always uh, harder to cover, um, to look after my children and I would be blacking out due to anaphylaxis and not sure if I was going to wake again um, and I was, and I was really lashing out at my family. I just couldn't believe that they could let me be left alone to do this by myself. And um, a couple of friends took it upon themselves to report me to SIFS, which is uh, now ta uh, something Tamariki. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah. That anyway, I rang Tamariki. Yeah. yeah, and so the police raided my home. Four of them turned up at four o'clock on a Tuesday morning, and four in the morning. Four in the morning, bashing on the doors to let them in. Um, they all came in, spotlights. It was all, I was told to sit at the table. I wasn't allowed to move. They were there to get my children. Um, and uh, I mean, the whole thing was was just, it was so far past a nightmare. I could kind of barely walk. And they came in, bashed their way through the house, and then very, very quickly realised that they that there was nothing going on. My kids were safely tucked up in bed. There was, you know, it was perfectly safe. So the senior sergeant who was with them stayed with me and he said to me at the time, um, yeah, a report was put through for the welfare of your children and clearly it wasn't right. And I wanted to know what they'd said and he wouldn't tell me. He said to me, whoever reported this really hates you. Um, so I explained the bigger story that was going on and um, at that point in time, I now had a SIFS record 
and a police record for having to check on my kids and was terrified, absolutely terrified that I was going to lose my children and be put, the, my doctor was at that point talking about putting me in residential care, which is basically they just stick you in an old person's home to die because you're kind of in the way and you're getting kind of annoying. Uh, and I started to question my own sanity at that point. Um, so I had just a psych- explain to me, if you will, and you don't have to, because it might be too private, but at this stage, you're on your own with your two youngest children. Yeah, yeah. The others so had were older and moved out by this point. And your husband was living apart from you. Yeah, we'd temporarily separated because of because I just was, yeah, I was yeah. too much. It was I should much. race ahead and say that you're back together, which yes. is lovely. Yeah, we are. But, and we, but at uh, this we stage, are. you were on your own with two young children, hence SIFs. And, man, you must have some great files on you. Oh, my, honestly, I can imagine they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> Every department of everywhere has, has records of what a crazy drama queen I am. <laughs> so. And, and of course, it's all got a pic. You just, anyone just has to look at it and they've got the full picture of you. Yeah. And having lost what you think is everything, you're now risking not just losing your life or blacking out and not waking up, you're at risk of losing your two children to the system. Yeah. And that was just, that was too much. So at that point I decided, yeah, maybe everyone was right. And I went for a psych assessment and I was admitted to the psych ward um, at Waikato and given more psych meds that made me definitely did make me actually crazy at that point I have no doubt I've got just the vaguest memories I remember blacking out in the shower and waking up on the floor and all the whole thing is just a haze because you shouldn't you can't give people psych meds who don't need psych meds (laughs) you know it's it's not but you just can't do it. it it makes them sick and so I was yeah medicated just just to the eyeballs uh, and pretty much just gave up at that point and decided that if I just accepted that everybody was right and that, and I stopped trying to fight the system, stopped trying to fight with doctors, stopped trying to fight with my family, just agreed with everyone and just accepted that I wasn't worthy of the care or the love or the medical aid or any of it, maybe that would be, sorry, again, struggle with this one still too clearly all these years later. Um, I, yeah, that I, if, if I just accepted I wasn't worthy, then maybe I would stay alive. Like the fight. You were, you were totally me. broken. Yeah. The, the battle was worse than the illness. And if I could give up the battle, maybe I'd, still have a fighting chance of staying alive through it. So so I gave up. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and this is real, real talk with uh, our guest, Sarah King, who's describing her experience of having this disease called EDS, which is genetic, and which destroys your connective tissue, but manifests itself in a whole 
complex array of symptoms, everything's falling to bits. But undiagnosed at this stage, just got hysteria written on her top of a very fat hospital file, a drug addict for checking in after sleeping through her appointment to see what would happen if she didn't have methadone for pain through the weekend, soiling herself outside Waikato Hospital and having a complete stranger walk up to check on her when the police had just removed her from the hospital and dumped her in the street outside and arranging through a family friend medication to get through the weekend. Then we have the police raiding her house at four in the morning, looking to remove her two youngest children from her because she's not fit to be a mother and not providing them with the care they need. And the police recognizing that that had been a false report. And now we have her in a psychiatric ward being fed psychiatric drugs which are on top of everything messing with her mind so she's totally alone extremely sick bereft and lost and giving up is that summarizing it Sarah yeah that's that's it in a nutshell at that point it was and here you are here you are so beautiful so wonderful, so full of life, telling us the story. So what happened? Well, I stuck it lucky. Um, um, not to maybe a few months earlier, when I had been into my GP, she hadn't been there that day, and I saw the the one who just you know the covering GP, and he said, "I read your file before you came in." And I'm going to find out what's wrong with you. And he'd been reading the reports that had come through from the hospital. He'd read, you know, everything. He was so interested. And I thought, yeah, sure you are, buddy. But he was like a dog with a bone. He was absolutely convinced that they were all missing something. And he researched and researched. I was getting emails from him at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. Wow. He kept going and going and going. And at that time, part of giving up meant psychologically I'd kind of given up, so my body also gave up. So I got stuck in what they call rolling anaphylaxis, and it's where you you don't come out of anaphylaxis before the next one hits. Essentially, you just you're in a constant rolling state of some level of hyper reaction. And for me, my comorbidities are. POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and mast cell activation syndrome. So I suffer from mast cell um, anaphylaxis, and it doesn't present like normal anaphylaxis, and it's all of your mast cells going completely crazy in your body. Um, and I got trapped there, so I ended up having eight hospitalizations in three I weeks. don't know what any of that means. Right. So, so uh, yeah, uh, neither did I, to be fair, let's be honest. <laughs> I didn't know that's what was happening. <laughs> uh, what it basically it basically means is uh, most people that suffer from anaphylaxis just have an allergic reaction to something and it is 
it's your throat that kicks in, you know, and and closes. And you have really, and your blood pressure goes up, you have really obvious signs of anaphylaxis. Mm-hmm. Mast cell anaphylaxis is mast cells are all through our body. And mine are constantly stuck on and quite confused. So when you go into mast cell anaphylaxis, ah. your whole body does a full reaction, um, which was why for me going into anaphylaxis meant things like soiling myself, which is not common and kind of weird for someone in anaphylaxis. But for me, the way mine presented was really different. I'd get a full body rash and I'd get just all sorts of really weird symptoms at the same time. So I got stuck in this place where my mast cells couldn't calm down enough to stop it happening. And I was reacting to just literally one thing after another over this three week period, I touched washing powder, it fell on my hand and I was suddenly in anaphylaxis and a peach that I'd forgotten to wash the chemicals off that set me off. I was allergic to the whole world. Like a fake lighting would set me off. Um, someone's perfume, if I walk past someone in the supermarket, their perfume could set me off. I had to like protect myself from the world. It was completely crazy. And so I got trapped in this space and he was watching these uh, hospital you know, reports come through to the GP's clinic. And he was just like, she's going to die. So he found a specialist um, who who does diagnose EDS in New Zealand, contacted him, told him my story. And he said, yeah, no, this is this is really bad. He has years-long wait lists, but he saw me within two days and immediately diagnosed me, told me I wasn't crazy. One of the first things he said to me <laughs> was, you're not crazy. Oh, and you'd want to kiss him. But I don't. <laughs> Honestly, the, the, this that man. must have been just. Yeah. Huge, life-changing. I started All those years, all those years. All the years. And he knew exactly what I'd gone, I'd gone through. He had heard so many, you know, been involved in so many similar stories that nothing I told him shocked him, absolutely nothing. You know, I was sort of waiting for him to go, oh, gosh, that, oh, my gosh, that, nothing. He, he said, yeah, you are a classic case of England. So he wasn't surprised by all your symptoms because he'd heard it before. Yeah. And he wasn't surprised by the health system's handling of it. No, not at all. Because he'd heard all that before too. Yeah. And And he was able able to break it all down for me as well into, you know, into this is EDS causes this. Um, you know, all the different comorbidities that you get with it. This is what causes this. This is this is how we're going to treat this. This is what we're going to do with this. This is how we're going to restabilize your body. So, so it wasn't he was just- he he is a respected medical professional in the health system. Uh, I, I I mean yeah. this in a nice way, in I the know, sense I that know what you mean. <laughs> a lot of doctors who help us and listen to us and tell us what's wrong with us and what we need and you get better, we find a lot of them dismissed by their peers. But he was a doctor who you were referred to by your locum GP. So I'm imagining that this 
doctor is rest- is within the system. Yes, so he's deeply respected in the international EDS community. Okay. Uh, I have heard stories of other specialists dismissing his diagnosis, diagnoses. Mm. Uh, because they've um, made their mind uh, up and they don't, and so they will, like, because of their nature of being a credentialed expert who's so used to patients coming in, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. You know, and they do it and they have their peers and their peer review and all the rest of it. Very difficult for them to admit they're wrong. Well, and they don't. And they so, don't. I mean, I'd seen, you know, other specialists in exactly the same field who'd already told me that's not what's wrong with you. Oh, wow. And I think that's one of the saddest parts of my story is the way our medical system is set up. There's no reflection, you know, no self-reflection, no internal review process. My diagnosis doesn't go back down the chain. It doesn't help future people in any way because the arrogance and ignorance that I faced, you know, with these medical professionals who thought that they knew everything, even though clearly Google knew more than them, clearly, which I told them you know, far more often than I should have, but it's all right here. <laughs> yeah. That they, they, they couldn't get past if they weren't medically trained in that, that's not real. So the he- awful thing is, is that we have this specialist who knows about EDS, can diagnose it, could predict everything that had happened to you, could explain it, yeah. could make sense of it, could diagnose it, you would think that the note, if it was McDonald's, and if you do X, the fat could go on fire, there'd be a note prepared that night and it would be within, I know this, I, I, I've had this explained to me, there was, there was a fire in the Rickerton McDonald's, a note was done within 24 hours the practice in every McDonald's in the world had changed. Right? Because this peculiar thing had happened. So you would think that patient X, who has been misdiagnosed and ill-treated by the system for years and years and years, at terrific financial personal and social cost you think a system that was well like a help like your resort in Newey, if there's a cock up right it gets picked up it gets reported within the system and it goes out to make sure it doesn't happen again but this doctor is telling you that this is happening over and over and over now and there'll be people all around the world, and possibly in New Zealand, who are going through exactly what you went through. And he and it's rinse and repeat. Yeah. And it's even worse than that. Post diagnosis, I still couldn't get my conversion disorder diagnosis removed from my file. So, you know, I post diagnosis, I've still had three four years of regular ambulance trips because 
even though the anaphylaxis is far under control, I still have to have constant contact with the hospital. They won't remove it. No. I can't get any of those misdiagnoses removed from my file. Well, it's crazy. Well, it's like a little communist state, the health system, and they can never be wrong. No, that, and that's exactly it. They, there is no opportunity for them. And, and to be fair, I, I really believe that while I faced some nasty, vicious human beings who should not be in healthcare at all, it's a system issue. I had doctors who couldn't help me because that just simply wasn't their job or there's no funding to help me. Or, you know, it, it wasn't that everyone relished in my hideous story no. and being a part of it. It was just, you know, I had specialists that I would go to and they would say to me, something's wrong with you, but it's not my department and I I can't help you. And um, so... They can wash you know, their hands. If we had a system, yeah, if we had a system where departments even communicated with each other, you know, you're treated, your body is treated in our medical system like every single part is completely separate and not connected to anything else. The heart doctor looks at the heart, only the heart. That's all he's interested in. You know, the the physio looks at the leg and helps fix that and leg that, and nothing else. And it took that locum. looking at it and spending all those hours Saturday night included working through and then sending you off to the one specialist in New Zealand, I assume. Yeah, there are now more, but at that point he was the only one diagnosing. With an 18-month. So you got, we're up to the point where you have a name that you have, this is what is wrong with me, and all these symptoms that I've been suffering all these years go back to this thing that I have with my body. And that explains why I was being put in a psych institute and been given psychiatric medicine because I was being misdiagnosed. So I've got all of that understanding, which in of itself must have been Wonderful, right? Oh, it was so exciting. Just that. But <laughs> then what <laughs> but then what happened? Like, did you do no, things? What no, happened there? No one really cared. It was ah. just this abs- I think people were so sick of my drama and my you know attention seeking and my story. And now apparently I've got this rare illness that, that I can't pronounce that, yeah that's genetic and oh and they can't heal me and it was just more drama and so it it took years for my world to really change and for me to have contact with some of my family members I'd completely lost contact with um and it took me accepting people are never really going to understand what I went through, um, accepting that in the future I'm going to get sicker again and I may have to do this all again. And that's just how it is. I had to find peace in myself. I couldn't 
continue to go on knowing because while I had a label which was really exciting the label came with this is for life and only gets worse and it's how you're built and there's nothing we can really do ultimately to fix it you just have to learn to find ways to live with it um and you're doing that I am and I did you know and you're living you're living the good life I'm I'm living a dream life we I realized I can't do society I can't do stress stress is without a doubt the biggest trigger for me so I had to find a peaceful way to exist. So we moved up into the hills away from society and our kids go to a gorgeous little country school where you know, people are friendly and sweet and the kids don't care what other kids are wearing or what's in their lunchbox. And we have a community around us. Um, yeah, we You're live- back with your husband. Yeah, yeah. We've, so we're working through, and it, it, there was a huge amount of trust lost through that process. I'm so, so pleased you're back hard. together. But yeah, but we 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 decided we had to work through it all. You know, we've got four kids and two grandkids to to have a community, you know, around us with and a broken marriage wasn't going to help anything. And he's vastly changed his perspective, vastly over the years on all of it. You know, it's now he he sees the medical system the way I do. Whereas he, just like most of the people in my world, thought that our medical system could do no wrong. And our, well, our doctors like, tell me they're right. Well, I think we have been through an experience with COVID these past three years that have changed many, many, many people's view of our medical system. Uh, it helped me, I can assure yeah. you. And, and <laughs> I... Don't trust them. And I still can't believe the lies that were told through COVID. And they were clearly lies. And you could say that they were unwitting, but they went along politically with a system that put... Jacinda Ardern and Ashley Bloomfield talking points between me and the doctor. And as we now know, between the pathologist and the death. Yeah. So you're living. Access to the same internet. I think that's the bit that blows my mind through it all. Yes. We all had access. We could all see the role that happened six months earlier. We all had access to the same information. So how yes. people have ended up on such different camps, I don't understand. But no. I know I only see it because I already had absolutely no faith in the system. No, no you just loved it. <laughs> now, are you worried that your children and grandchildren will have this condition? I'm, I'm not worried. This is just a reality. Um, In fact, if anything, I'm glad I went through what I went through and I didn't drop dead because if it's managed from a younger age, it doesn't have to have anything like the impact. It doesn't have to do the damage that it uh, it did to my life. Um, Are you you running around bending their thumbs? Yeah, yeah, we do actually. It's really, unfortunately, all my kids are somewhat hypermobile. Oh, 
hypermobility in itself doesn't okay. necessarily. And I mean, a lot of children are hypermobile full stop just because their bodies okay. are growing and they're bendy. Um, but I think we we do think there's a, there's a likelihood that two of the kids have got it. Uh, but as I say, I'm just I'm so ridiculously proactive about making sure that as soon as things appear, we get onto it and we get bodies stabilized. There's amazing, amazing alternative therapies that help. Mm. Um, there's like, so, so for me to, to be alive and smiling at you right now, I see a chiropractor every three weeks. I see my specialist. And as I said at the beginning, I have the prolotherapy injections, which is slowly restabilizing the major joints in my body. Um, I see a contact care practitioner and so she works with a method called flinchlock release and that helps with the pain, the aching. It also helps with a lot of the emotional challenges that I went through and the trauma and uh, so I have sort of my own little world around me right now that keeps me upright and together but for my children as they, if they do emerge that this is what they've got uh, it'll be more about physiotherapy and learning to strengthen certain parts of the body right from the start, right from young, <laughs> so that they never get to this point and never break. Yeah. Now, I've got two final questions because I have loved this conversation. is upsetting and it is a very moving story. Do you like your chickens? <laughs> I love my chickens. <laughs> I love my chickens more than anything in the world. No, not quite more than my kids and my family, but I, chickens are the best. You've got, you got hens that lay eggs, chickens. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So I'm a, I, th I would like to have them, but I find them a bit scary. Oh, no, no. You know what? I, I don't think people have any idea the personalities chickens have until you have oh, them. Okay, they, well. They're like dogs. They're hilarious. Yeah, they make okay. me so happy. Yeah. yeah. We're working towards a self-sustainable life where possible because you know, any chemical on a vegetable is bad for me. And oh, any of course you've hypersensitive, yeah. Yeah, because of all of that, we're working towards, you know, we've we're we're trying to have as little to do with the chemicals of the world. And that means, yeah, eggs and chickens and veggie gardens. Yeah. And all that be very stuff. careful where you get your meat from. Oh, good for yeah, you. You've got, yeah, to, you got to listen to me and Wally. Uh, when we do our show, because um, we do a show every fortnight on gardening, and he's just wonderful. And second thing, deeper yes. question, do you have a religious faith? I don't. I never did. I was raised by a family with Catholics and Presbyterians, and all I ever saw in my world was uh, fighting over religion. So I didn't understand why. What I do have uh, is I don't like to use the word religion and I don't even these days like to use the word spiritual because I kind of think that even that now has a bunch of weirdo connotations to it. I have a belief that something is there and something has got me through this. There's no something doubt. Something has, right. Something has at those moments that were the worst of the worst of the worst, something told me to pull through and it would be okay. And um, that feeling, I have no doubt, is something. <laughs> but I just well, let's say, to say it label it. Well, yeah, it's it is definitely it's a god, and I think 
personally, my belief on it all is I think all religions are the same. And I think we've all got the same God. And I think spiritualism mm. is the same. Everyone's got, it's just all got different labels for, for that. Is that amazing? Because yeah. you had that ability to go so deep within yourself to survive this and come out smiling. But also you felt you were being helped through it. Yeah, I really do. I really, I really feel like there was there was something that picked me up and carried me through the parts where I just couldn't anymore. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, you're so wonderful. Would you mind one day coming back on my show? Because I'd love to learn all about your straw house or cob house that you've built and your chickens and your sustainability because it looks and sounds so wonderful. Because, yeah, awesome. And then to. we don't need to talk. Well, we'll check in on how you are, but that would be rather you've done an, you're doing an amazing job up in the hills. If anyone would like to send uh, Sarah a note. Uh, text me 2057 and I'll send it on or email me inbox at realitycheck.radio you might have some questions because you might know a family member that is suffering something like this or having a struggle with the health system and that from Sarah was a truly remarkable experience um, sort of words failed you and I'm just so pleased I never used any bad ones, um, <laughs> how she was treated. So that was Sarah King, a truly amazing, amazing human being, amazing woman, beautiful woman, strong woman, uh, lived a life and suffered a life like we can't imagine. We can just hear and listen and gain strength from, because it certainly strengthens me. And... Haven't we learned this past little while to question everything and not just take the guys in the white coats with their degrees on the wall uh, as gospel? Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rarely Check Radio. What a talk. What a speech. Thank you. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got a new section now. It's called Politics Explained. Back to the basics in the political sandpit. And I'm joined by my wonderful friend, Tane Webster, young man. And he's been questioning me about politics. And we decided to make it a show. And this week, we're talking MMP and first past the post. Oh, listen in and do send us a text, 2057, or an email, inbox at Reality check.radio thank you for listening you're listening to politics explained back to basics in the political sandpit with rodney hyde and tane webster right so the the question this week is what's the main difference how would you explain the difference between mmp and fpp to someone who didn't understand Sure. Well, it's I always put things into a historical context to understand it rather than just making these two choices. In New Zealand, we have the wonderful Westminster system of government. 
Uh, there's really two great systems in the world. The Republican system of the United States copied through uh, South America, for example, a wonderful, wonderful system. And then there's the great Westminster system uh, copied through the Commonwealth mostly and here in Australia and New Zealand. And then, of course, you have the European systems, which are proportional systems. And so the difference between the first-past-the-post system is that one, the MMP system is proportional. Now, with first-past-the-post, which is what we had, you divide the country up into electorates of a similar size, and people would stand in those electorates, and the person with the most votes would become the local MP. And then the person that could get the most MPs in our parliament would become the prime minister and they would get to form a cabinet. Now, the nature of these things is, is that over time, you sort of find yourself voting for the prime minister because that's the leader of the country. And so with first past the post, it reduces to two parties typically. Sometimes you might get a third, but mostly it's just a two-party system. So you have the prime minister and the alternative because you can't have a three-way race for prime minister and first past the post and politics is very conservative so it's not like a new party can just start up and jump in it, it doesn't happen it's a very rare for that thing because you have a main party and the opposition and the opposition is always teasing at the edges of the government hard for a third party to get in the key thing the key advantage of first-past-the-post, in my mind, is this. It allows you to dump a, a government very easily. And that, to me, is the strength of a democracy. To me, a, a, the issue of democracy isn't about it revealing people's preferences, because that's absurd, because you only get sort of one or two votes, right? How can you reveal your preferences with one or two votes? And three or four choices at most. But what democracy does allow you is that you can get those that rule over you, run the cops, run the army, you can get rid of them. Democracy's wonderful. You just vote them out. And what that means is that you don't necessarily get a good government, which I think is oxymoronic, but it prevents you from getting bad government because all governments go rotten over time. First past the post, we kick them out. We keep them on their toes. And the alternative comes in. The previous party spend some time in opposition, sort themselves out and come back in. It's, it's a rejuvenating process. So the criticism of first past the post is that the party in government may not get the most votes. It might get in with 40% because the votes are nicely, it depends how mm. the votes fall from electorate to electorate. It becomes a majority system in the electorates, so you get a predominance of white men, typically, because they're the ones locally that involve themselves in politics. And so we had some unpopular governments, and it came up that what we should have was MMP, Oh, my goodness, MMP would solve all our problems. And so this is often happens in politics, Tane. 
with MMP, it was proposed, and you do this in politics, you have reality, which is messy and not quite right, not particularly fair, and things go wrong. And then you propose an alternative, and you make the alternative close to utopia because it's not real. It's like what you imagine it could be. And so MMP was presented as this imagined system that would solve all our problems. I mean, literally. And so people went off and voted for MMP thinking it would solve the problems. It's a different system. So MMP is a mixture between first past the post and a proportional system. So it's a mixture of PR and FPP. F first yeah, FPP. Funnily enough, I don't know if it's true, but I was told that the only other place that has uh, MMP that I know of is Germany. And I'm told that at the end of World War II, there was a huge debate over the governance of West Germany. And the Europeans wanted a proportional system and the British and the Americans wanted a first-past-the-post system because that's what both allies, the different allies, we're used to. Europeans have proportional representation. America and Britain had first-past-the-post. And some person sitting in the civil service came up with MMP. Those people that wanted if first-past-the-post looked at it and said, oh, there's first-past-the-post. And the proportional people looked at it and said, oh, that's PR. And so that's what became in Germany. Interestingly, I think only New Zealand copied it. There might have been one other country that tried it. So it's a mixture. So you have a set number of seats that are first past the post, which, funny enough, don't matter that much to the political parties because the total number of seats that you have in our parliament which is what counts, is given by the party vote. So if you get 40% of the party vote, you effectively get 40% of the seats. So it's totally proportional representation to your vote. And what happens is you run a list, you run seats, and you get topped up off your list. So uh, when you're a political party, the thing that interests you is the party vote. When you're in first past the post and you're a political party, the thing that interests you are the marginal seats. So you might have 100 electorate seats in New Zealand under first past the post now. There'd be 20 that would be marginal. They'd be the ones that would flip between national and Labour, national and Labour. That's where you spend your time because the party that wins those 20 marginal seats that are close every election, evenly balanced between Labour and National, they're the ones that are going to form the government or determine the government. And if you're in a, a Fendleton or a Christchurch East electorate, you don't even try. You don't care about it, because one's going to vote Labour and the other's going to vote National through thick and thin. Forget about them. Concentrate on the marginal seats. With MMP... Your focus goes on the whole electorate and you're after the party vote. This has huge consequences to how politics is played and how campaigns are run. You give up on electorate meetings. Uh, I mean, the only thing that interests you 
as the party vote. You tell your candidates not to say anything, right? Because if they say anything, chances are it could, if it's bad, it'll end up in the paper. If it's good, no one will notice. So you get into the strict MMP campaign of the party vote and the only person that speaks is the leader and the leader is running around with a big campaign team of specialists telling them what to say, looking at the polling results and determining it. So the campaign itself becomes media-focused, professional and distant from the people because electorates, who cares? The other thing Mm. it does, and then I'm finished with MMP, the other thing it does, it does allow for what you'd call more diversity because people choose, the parties choose their list and so they can put more women in, uh, they can look at the overall balance of their party, that they've got a good representation for the country. So that is a plus. Uh, the other thing it does, and this is hard to see from the outside, but inside it's crushing. MMP puts all the power of politics into the party hierarchy. And by the party hierarchy, I mean the party leader, I mean the party president, and amazingly, the paid staff. MPs are dependent upon those three groups to determine their list place. Ostensibly, their list place is determined democratically, but ultimately it's up to the board, and when it's up to the board, it's up to the leadership, and they decide. So now you don't see outspoken MPs, renegade MPs, Uh um, all the rest of it, because even with an electorate seat, I want a high list place because that's my status, and the board and the leader have now become so powerful under MMP, they could see me pushed out of my electorate. I believe if we'd had FPP, first past the post, I doubt the lockdowns would have been so effective in New Zealand Mm. through COVID because I think we could have had a couple of MPs speak out. Certainly we did in the UK. Mm, mm. Yeah, one of the other things that, I think about and, and say to people to be to hear your thoughts on is with with FPP it's it's more about land and it's an equal representation across the land because it's the the positions in Parliament divided up based on land mass whereas in MP um, MMP it's it's based on population so the cities have a huge advantage like there's I'm not sure how many electorates in Auckland. Central, it's probably, it's over 10, probably, you know, maybe 15 or more, whereas the South Island as a whole has, I'm not sure, but probably around a similar number of electorates in total, 15 or 16, 17. And so you're actually, with, with FPP, you're actually having to win the whole country or win a majority of the, the land mass and have people evenly dispersed. Whereas with with MMP you can have you can have a whole lot of people just coming in on the list that don't actually they're not held accountable by any locality any any yeah. particular group of people in the, in the whole country. Yeah, no, you're half right. Right, no. 
but in conclusion, you're totally right. The electorates themselves uh, have always been about people. So numbers of people basically determine the size of electorates. There's a South Island quota and there's the Maori seats, which make for a complication. But in general, um, it's people, whether it's first past the post or MMP. The difference is this. Under first past the post, you would have rural seats. They wouldn't make up more than their population proportion, but those MPs would be answerable to their rural constituents. And so they might only be 10 MPs, 20 MPs out of 100, say, but they would speak up and they would want to be heard. They would want to be in Parliament promoting their constituents. That's how they'd get to keep their seat in Parliament and they would keep their leadership on its toes and as long as they had the support of their constituents, they couldn't be shut up or kicked out. Under MMP, you still have those rural MPs, but they're totally under the thumb. And because our populations are concentrated in the cities, the leadership is concentrated in the cities. And so the whole whole politics is now dictated by Wellington and Auckland. Mm-hmm. And no one else gets a look in because that's where the media are. That's where the leadership is. That's where the board is. That's where the um, staff are. And that's why, again, we got such a distorted view of the lockdowns because the people making the decisions weren't out and about in the real world. I'm not opposed to MMP. If I'm asked about what's best, I say I think first past the post because it allows for a decisive vote. And I don't look to politics to give me to give me a good government. I allow it to, me to kick a bad one out. And I don't like coalition government because what it's meant is that you're a third party like ACT and we could put up any old policy, right? And we just we could just put up any old policy that would win us votes. And then you'd have to sit down with National and decide what you'd do, right? And so it's quite tricky because you can't demand all your manifesto because you didn't get that many votes. So literally, you've just had a vote, an election, and then it goes behind closed doors with a third party and a major party to decide the policy direction and that has to get decided over a couple of days, or if you're Winston Peters, you know, six weeks, right? That's not a healthy process of deciding a government. Not transparent, and it's not accountable. So mm-hmm. I particularly hate those coalition negotiations. As a voter, as a politician, I love it, because you've got enormous power. <laughs> so it's quite exciting, but not for the voters. So I don't, mm-hmm. like, I don't like coalition governments. I like, there's the leader, that's what they stood for, did they do it? If they didn't do it, kick them out.
I think the a way to close this off is that for, for us, for the people who listen to Reality Check Radio, what matters most is not which political system it is, because ultimately, as we discussed on the weekend before, politics is downstream from culture. So we're, we're focused on the cultural change for now anyway. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, I mean, the politicians will make whatever system that you have work. Uh, yeah. The key thing is to live in a democracy so one way or another governments can't get too too bad. Um, it, what troubles me at the moment is that they seem in lockstep so much on all the things that matter to me. And mm-hmm. I can't see a difference between the political parties. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why we have Reality Check Radio, because for a while we couldn't see the difference between the media and the political parties. <laughs> Tane, always lovely to talk. Thank you cool. so much. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's Reality Check Radio. That was Tane. Uh, wonderful, wonderful young man. There, there are so many great young people, and they've all stepped up. I've noticed because of the experience of the last little while, they have learnt what freedom is firsthand. They've learnt what it is to be bossed around and they're prepared to stand up for what's right. They've not come through the political parties, but they've stood up for values and principles like Tane. And I just love the political leadership that we're seeing emerge here in New Zealand. Thank you so much for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oops, they're coming. Can you feel it? The one thing we know about the authorities of New Zealand is they don't like us thinking our own mind saying what we think, and sharing it with others. I wouldn't have thought that was possible, but we saw it through the COVID drama. Oh, my goodness. We sort of got used to it, didn't we? That dissenting voices were denied access to newspapers, radio shows, TV, didn't matter how credentialed. No questions could be asked. No alternative could be put up. We had to be locked down. We had to have mandates. You had to take the jab. And any questioning of that was undermining public health. It was killing nanas. And so it was not allowed. We now know that governments around the world including our own, we're censoring and closing down our own private messages online. Put up a Facebook post, taken down. Tweet, taken down. Or shadow ban, that is to say its reach was restricted. No reason need to be given, particularly just done. The shocking one for me was, was Linda Wharton. What a wonderful woman. A community group with thousands, tens of thousands of vex-injured New Zealanders talking to each other, helping each other, supporting each other when our own government failed us. 
failed them. They were doing it themselves, shut down over and over and over again. Think that was over? Think it's done? Think they're not doing it now? Sadly not the case. Here we are on Rudy Check Radio, able to connect, able to talk freely, able to speak as we please, to question, to reason, to ask, to criticise, to talk to each other. But how long for? Because, as we now know, there is proposed a new regulator for online content. There's a discussion paper out by the government from the Department of Internal Affairs. Oh, it sounds so benign, Department of Internal Affairs. When did they ever cause anyone any trouble? But here's a proposal. Turns out that New Zealanders are being exposed to harmful content online. Well, <laughs> after seeing what some kids get up to, I agree. There's a lot of harmful content out there that kids are exposed to, and they shouldn't be. The only thing I know what to do is to severely watch and limit my kids' access to online because the government ain't doing anything about it, nor will this proposal help. By the way, I've also got to watch like a hawk when we go to the local public library. In the kids' section, there's a whole lot of LBQT+, LP, I don't know. I forget all the letters now. I'll put a plus in. That'll capture them all. A whole lot of LBQT plus literature. Totally unacceptable to eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds. Actually, it horrifies me, and I'm not a kid. Available, being promoted in the school. <laughs> but that's considered to be inclusive, not harmful. So you've got to look after your kids. There is a lot of harmful content online. Anyway, the government says, the DIA says, we've got this discussion document which says we've got to protect New Zealanders from this harmful content. And what we're going to, that they're proposing is to have a new piece of legislation that'll be all-encompassing, pick up everything. And there'll be a regulatory agency and that regulatory agency will be responsible for having industry and groups set up codes of conduct that will apply to everyone. And they'll define what's harmful, and it'll be stopped in its tracks. Government. And if the industry doesn't come up with codes of practice that are strict enough, then the regulator, regulator, regulatory body will just stiffen it up. Oh, by the way, this regulatory body, it's proposed that it should be engaged with Māori and it should fulfil Treaty of Waitangi obligations. So in the code of conduct that will apply to everyone online, anyone that's tweeting, anyone that's on Facebook, anyone on Reality Check Radio, the regulator that is regulating us, that is to say me, and what you get to listen to, 
will be having to be busy fulfilling the Treaty of Waitangi obligations. That regulatory body will have to have Maori representation. It'll have to have iwi co-governments. It may consider having a minimum standard for Maori competence. Hmm. It also says it'll be very important for this regulator to ensure that Maori are free to express themselves. No one else will be free to express themselves. So it sounds ominous, does it not? Regulatory body, parliament, legislation, what you can and can't say, codes of practice being developed, being enforced, co-governments, treaty. And then you get to this number of the issue of harmful content. And we've seen the government define harmful content, haven't we? Because the government said it was harmful to have people suggest that it mightn't be a good idea for a pregnant woman to be taking the COVID jab or young kiddies taking the COVID jab. That was considered harmful content. So there's no doubt that under these proposals, such talk, such discussion, such proposal will be banned online from New Zealand. That means Facebook, that means Twitter, that means Reality Check Radio. And indeed, when you look at it, the only thing that will be allowed to be discussed medically will be what the government says you can discuss. Because anything that questions, oh, imagine this, carbon dioxide, it causes catastrophic climate change. Well, questioning that, that would be harmful, even though CO2 causing catastrophic climate change isn't true. It's not happening, and we've known that for decades. But to say it's not happening, to question whether it's happening, harmful content, banned. Imagine questioning the implementation of the principles of treaty of Waitangi everywhere we look. Legal profession, dentists, doctors, schools, questioning it. What are these principles? Who signed up to them? When did this get decided? What has it got to do with real estate agents and lawyers? What are the implications of it? Ah, harmful, wrong, banned. Twitter, Facebook, Reality Check Radio, anything online. Imagine proposing that we go from being a race-based country to one where we used to be where there was one law for all, getting rid of the Maori seats, getting rid of special privileges according to your ancestry. Oh, that would be harmful because nowadays to be opposed to racism is to be a racist and is harmful. 
imagining questioning queer theory, which is to say questioning whether little boys and little girls were born into the wrong body and before they hit puberty need to be chemically castrated to buy some time while they decide whether they want to be a boy or a girl and have, quote, gender-affirming care, which is to have their reproductive bits cut out of them and made-up bits put on them. Question that. Question that. It's now called genocide. Now, listening, you and I know that's nutty, but it's considered the erasure of trans people and has been called by activists genocidal. Can't get more harmful than that. So questioning whether boys can be girls and girls can be boys is harmful and will be banned. And so the government hasn't stopped wanting to shut down free speech. And the great thing about this debate is it's left me a free speech absolutist. We should be able to think what we choose to think, and we should be able to speak what we think and debate it. And I mean everyone. I don't mind the nutcases speaking up, speaking out, because one person's nutcase is another person's truth teller. And I believe in the great debate, when we can hear debate, we can get to understand each other. We can get to learn from each other. And we can get closer and closer to the truth. By hearing ideas, discussing ideas, criticizing ideas, and comparing ideas against the real world. That's how it works. And we can't get to the truth. We can't understand each other unless we're free to debate. And what is being proposed by the Department of Internal Affairs, and bear this in mind, haven't heard the government repudiate it, any government up till now would have killed that report stone dead on arrival. Not this government. And you want to get really scared? I haven't heard the opposition condemn it stone dead yet either. Until that happens, ladies and gentlemen, our free speech is in danger of being stifled. It's been stifled before. They're going to come now and have a proper go. So, when you're talking to your local MP or the people that want to represent you or you get an opportunity to question your politicians this an election year, ask them, where do they stand on free speech? Do they believe that we should be protected from harmful content? Do they agree that there should be a regulator telling us what we can and can't say? Do they believe that there should be codes of practice being enforced? And in particular, being enforced racially 
as the Department of Internal Affairs have proposed? Or do they believe that we should be able to stand up in the street and shout out what we believe whenever and wherever we choose? Well, I know where I stand. I think I know where you stand. But I worry about everyone else. Thank you for listening. You're on Reality Check Radio. Send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send us a text, 2057. Where are the limits to free speech online? And who should be deciding what's harmful and what's not? Or should be should it be a free-for-all where we actually have to look after ourselves? Because I've never seen government helping much with the really, really bad stuff. I have seen them shut down everyone that was trying to get the truth out through that COVID experience. Thank you for listening. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. On RCR, Reality Check Radio. What a show. What a great show. Thank you for having us to your house this morning. It was wonderful to hear from Claire Williamson about getting on the property ladder for young people. Uh, What a go-getter she is and what an inspiration. And then we had the extraordinary Sarah King. My goodness, what an indomitable human spirit. What a life lesson that when we think we're going through a bit of a tough time, just think of Sarah and think of how she keeps going. And then the lovely Tane Webster, we talked MMP and First Past the Post, and I had to say I had to rack my brain thinking about First Past the Post, how long it has been since we had that system of government and elections. Now we have MMP. It's a different world. And it's one that we need to understand to make it work for us, the citizens, and not the politicians and the political parties. So thank you for tuning in. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Reality Check Radio. Thank you for having us to your home, to your car, to your place of work, 
and to be joining in with the community. So please send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio or send us a text at 2057. I love hearing from you. Thank you so much for listening.